Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, welcome. I want to thank you for being here today and to learn about Heritage's assessment and key findings from our nation's military readiness. The American principles that Heritage works to preserve and pass on to the next generation depend on the promise that we have a military strong enough to protect this nation and everything that it stands for. Without that kind of military to defend us from our enemies and to deter potential adversaries, everything that America is, everything that America was meant to be, could be lost. Preventing a loss like that is exactly why we're here this morning. Each year, the Heritage Foundation's Index of U.S. Military Strength gauges the ability of our armed forces to perform their missions in today's very changing world. The index is the only independent assessment that covers four branches of the armed forces. It takes a detailed look at readiness and capabilities and points out where a lack of personnel, equipment, and training can combine to cause some very serious problems. It's become a roadmap for decision makers as members of Congress and administration officials and policymakers at the Pentagon read and rely on this index every year. The index carries that kind of weight because Heritage is fortunate enough to have several highly respected retired military officials and researchers in our ranks at our Center for National Defense. As they put this together, and as I have been briefed over the last few days, I always say that we have some of the most extraordinary researchers and writers at the Heritage Foundation, and certainly we do in this department. There's not enough time to name them all, but to show you their breadth of experience, I'd like to highlight a few who were responsible for this very comprehensive report. Retired Army Lieutenant General Tom Spores, the director of Heritage's Center for National Defense. Thank you so much. Extraordinary work, just extraordinary. He served as the Deputy Commanding General of U.S. Forces in Iraq in Operation New Dawn, where he successfully oversaw the safe withdrawal in 2011 of all U.S. forces and equipment from Iraq. New Dawn was one of the most logistically intensive operations ever attempted by the U.S. military, and we are honored that you are continuing your service to this country here. Retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood is our Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs and oversees the INDEX project. 
During his Marine Corps service, he participated in the planning and execution of Operation Enduring Freedom following the attacks of 9-11 and Operation Iraqi Freedom to, dispose, to depose Saddam Hussein. The culmination of his career was conducting studies on military, political, and technological matters for senior officials at the Marine Corps and the Defense Department. Where is Dakota? Taking the secretary. Well, you let him know that we expressed our appreciation for the phenomenal work that he is doing. J.V. Venable is a former commander of the celebrated U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. In 2004, he took command of the 379th Air Expeditionary Group and led 16 squadrons and 1,100 personnel to support ground and air operations during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Did he? There you are. Thank you so very much. Bruce Klinger spent 20 years at the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. Part of his career was spent serving as the CIA's Deputy Division Chief for Korea, responsible for the analysis of military and political issues for the President and other senior U.S. policy makers. Dean Cheng is a former congressional and defense industry analyst who's an expert on China's military doctrine its space program, and the dual military and industrial uses associated with its industries and scientific infrastructure. James DePayne is a research associate and the program manager for the index, who is responsible for helping Dakota and the team put the index together. I'd also like to recognize the man who heads our entire national security and foreign policy team, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano. Jim is a 25-year Army veteran whose assignments included military strategist, head speechwriter for the Army Chief of Staff. Jim is also an accomplished historian and researcher with significant expertise in homeland security and defense issues. Can we thank this stellar team for the work that they're doing? There are many others. We talked about you while you were gone. I brought the Secretary of the Navy down. He wanted to say hi to yourself. Oh, my goodness. Hello. Hi, and welcome back. We're glad to have you. Please. What an extraordinary morning this is. There are many others who worked on this extraordinary project, and you all are all to be thanked. So as we release the 2020 Index of U.S. Military Strength today, I want to introduce someone who's played a vital role in keeping the needs of our American military top of mind in Congress. Senator Joni Erst was born and raised on an Iowa farm in America's heartland. Her parents instilled in her a love for country and the values of hard work, service, and sacrifice. She served her country in the U.S. Army Reserve and in the Iowa National Guard. She was a company commander in Kuwait and Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom, and she retired as a lieutenant colonel after 23 years of military service. 
In 2014, she was elected as the first female combat, uh, combat veteran in the history of the United States. And today she serves as a powerful voice for our military on the Armed Service Committee. Senator, I first became aware of you through a commercial that you were running at, you know the one, and I said, that's my kind of lady right there. One who is both feminine and knows how to kick some major butt. <laughs> you were phenomenal. And so it is with a great deal of love and appreciation for your service that we welcome you to the Heritage Foundation today. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Kay's a pretty remarkable woman, isn't she? Let's give her a round of thanks as well. <clears throat> thanks, Kay. Oh, yes, it all starts back at the farm. That's <laughs> Well, thanks, and it is an honor to be with you folks uh, today, and I, I truly appreciate it. Secretary, thank you so much for honoring us with your presence today as well. I appreciate your participation, and to all of those that contributed to this great effort, uh, those of us that uh, work and uh, pretty much reside on the Hill, um, nonstop. Uh, we really do appreciate the effort and the detail of analysis that goes into this report. So thank you very much. And again, just thanks to Kay for her wonderful introduction and for your wonderful leadership here at Heritage. And to Tom Spore, thank you, Tom, very much. Um, always appreciate your hard work. And Dakota Wood, and we'll excuse you from being absent during the introduction because you were with the secretary. <laughs> and of course, the wonderful Heritage staff who worked tirelessly on bringing these important issues uh, to light, those that are facing our nation every day and for organizing today's event. Whether you live in Iowa or Mississippi, California, or our uh, any, any state in the union, of course, our nation's defense impacts all of us every single day. The freedoms that we enjoy, the protection from our enemies, and the men and women, friends and family deployed all around the world uh, to keep us safe. So very important folks indeed. The very survival of our country, our values, and the American way of life rests on the solid foundation of our national defense. The raid carried out by our brave special operators in Syria this weekend once again reminds us that at any given moment, America's armed forces are deployed worldwide to protect our homeland. These successes do not come by chance, nor can they be taken for granted. The world continues to undergo significant change with no shortages of threats facing us abroad and right here at home. This is my second year in a row of speaking at the launch of the Index of Military Strength. And one of the nice things about that is it gives me an opportunity to reflect on what's changed over the past year. And folks, we all know a lot has in terms of policy, in terms of personnel, and in terms of our security posture. As a mother, as a veteran, and as a United States Senator, I can tell you that this year's index of US military strength highlights the real threats which keep me and many others up at night. Since 2015, most threats to the United States have grown in capability and maintained their aggressive behavior. 
Military modernization efforts implemented by Russia and China have borne fruit. These adversaries are investing in capabilities which seek to offset American strengths and military advantages. As chairman of the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities, I have examined closely the strides our global competitors have made. Russia has turned an army of ragtag conscripts following the collapse, of course, of the Soviet Union into a very modern and professional fighting force. It is investing in technologies like hypersonic weapons, disruptive cyber capabilities, and modern aircraft, all with the goal of projecting Russian power around the world including deploying bombers to Venezuela and South Africa. The use of hybrid warfare and information manipulation coupled with these technologies gives Russia an asymmetric advantage in many of the regions in which it operates. And folks, then there's China. China has rapidly invested in anti-ship ballistic missiles, hypersonics, and artificial intelligence while significantly growing the size and capability of their naval forces. The goal, challenge American primacy in the Pacific. By bullying its neighbors in the South China Sea to accept Chinese supremacy and trapping many developing countries through predatory lending practices through its Belt and Road Initiative, China uniquely combines its growing military might with its economic strength. In comparing the threats posed by Russia and China, make mo no mistake, folks, while the Russian strategy is to disrupt the United States, it's China's intent to absolutely displace us. China seeks to expand everywhere America is perceived to be retreating. Meanwhile, the threat posed by the radical regime in Iran, the growing nuclear capabilities in North Korea, and the ever-present threat of violent extremist organizations will continue to demand our attention for the foreseeable future. Given what we've seen going on in northern Syria, I recently introduced a resolution asking the Department of Defense and the State Department to articulate a clear strategy on how we will ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS. Al-Baghdadi's takedown was a huge, huge victory, but we must prevent ISIS from re-emerging. Their propaganda machine must be destroyed or we will face real consequences in our communities at home. With all of this in mind, it is incumbent upon my colleagues and I in Congress to ensure we arm our men and women in uniform with every advantage. We must stave off the threats just outlined and to ensure both our allies and our adversaries never question our resolve or our capabilities. We cannot allow tomorrow to be the day that China makes a calculation that taking Taiwan by force would result in anything but failure. And we cannot allow Russia to decide the United States and our NATO allies would back down following a Russian invasion of the Baltic states. In this year's National Defense Authorization Act, I focused on some key issues that will help shape our fighting force for the years to come, like investing in emerging capabilities such as artificial intelligence, directed energy, advanced manufacturing, and autonomous systems. 
At the end of the day, American ingenuity will become critical in evolving how we fight. Folks, we need to take a hard look at systems that are no longer applicable to the current or the future fight. Hard choices must be made to divest of legacy systems that lack the mobility or survivability in the high-end fight or those that are already outranged or outgunned. Our great Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, has already begun holding what he calls night court at the Department of Defense in much of the same way he did during his time as the Secretary of the Army. He closely scrutinizes every program and is having hard discussions on why a program should or should not be retained. I will welcome his leadership in this regard and will do everything that I can to support his efforts. The readiness of our fighting men and women must also remain at the forefront in Congress and at DOD. As this year's index points out, all of the services have prioritized readiness and have made improvements since last year, but significant work still remains. From pilot shortages, backlogs and ship maintenance and missed recruiting goals, daunting challenges threaten the readiness of our formations at a time when they must be more ready than ever to defend our homeland. One of the less sexy areas of my SASC work, but one that I've made a top priority, is making sure your tax dollars are spent wisely. Folks, I firmly believe that debt and government waste and inefficiency are often the real and ignored threat to our national security. And I want to emphasize the following message today. The fact that defense hawks and budget hawks are not mutually exclusive. I challenge my colleagues, yes, thank you, Kay, and we've had many discussions about this. I challenge my colleagues in the defense world to get serious about cutting waste. And I challenge our budget hawks to look at the threats we face and help us make decisions that contribute to our national security. The continuing resolution we passed at the beginning of this fiscal year was no way to do business. Our service members deserve better. With a defense budget that has grown significantly over the years, it is our duty in Congress to provide the oversight and guidance to prevent waste and ensure transparency. Taxpayers in my home state of Iowa and across the country must have faith that the programs in which we are investing are serving to underpin the long-term security and survival of our great nation. To that end, I applaud DOD for their work in auditing the department and stand ready to work with them as they identify and correct their deficiencies. Furthermore, as the Chinese economy continues to grow, we must make wiser investments that do not match our adversaries dollar for dollar. Rather, we must ensure that every dollar we spend will provide the capabilities we actually need. We must strive to reduce wasteful inefficiencies, which we cannot afford. Thank you all again for your time this morning. I look forward to continuing my work in Congress to support our national defense. And thanks to all of you for help shaping this discussion, our conversation this morning, and advancing your efforts to serve our men and women in uniform. Thank you so very much to the Heritage. Thank you. So.
Dakota, we'll take a couple questions. Um, so I know that you actually have to walk out of the building here in 10 Pretty minutes. Yeah. Um, so maybe you and I could have a couple. Or uh, I think you... that would be okay. great, Dakota. Um, you. So you yeah. talked about the need for hard decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, budget hawks and fiscal hawks or, or defense hawks are not mutually exclusive and it really has, I think I saw it to do with the role of government, right? So right. Uh, there are things that only the federal government can do and are constitutionally obligated and then there are other things that, that it gets involved with, right? We're already having trillion dollar deficits, et cetera, and a lot of those drivers are you know, non-defense related spending. So um, I just, I very am sympathetic to elected members of Congress who know what we should be doing, and yet they have to respond and make a case to constituents for, I don't know, reduction of services or higher taxes or spending what you imply on the military, et cetera. I mean, how do you reconcile those things uh, in the chamber and then with the larger American yes, public? Yes, certainly. And we do have to make very hard, uh, hard decisions. And as you stated, Dakota, we actually do have things we are charged with by the Constitution. And, and first and foremost, our national defense, protecting our homeland and our people. And so we need to put that at the forefront and make those priorities known within the chamber. So as we're talking about other programs, and I'm just, I'm making this particular program up, so please don't misunderstand me, but our nation and our, our job as a nation is to protect our people. National defense is very important. But we have had what I call mission creep over so many years where the federal government has gone into areas that we are not charged with as a federal government. So again, the made up program, you know, providing dollars for wildflowers along the interstate system. Okay, great and noble goal. Okay, but is that the federal government's goal? No, it is not. And so we, we have seen that mission creep where we are collecting tax dollars. And during those good years, we expand programs that maybe aren't necessarily what the federal government should be spending dollars on. But because we can get those dollars, we do get those dollars and we spend them on things other than national security, other than our judiciary, and other uh, than the, the systems we are charged to take care of, such as our interstate and transportation systems. So we really do have to get back to the basics, but it is stressing that point to the members of Congress and making sure that they understand that we are charged with funding our national security. Uh, another one that's related to it, you talked about the, uh, the kind of almost the evolution from Cold War, global stage, uh, state on state. Uh, we were involved in counterterrorism, counterinsurgency things, and now back in this era of great power competition. And yet the military has shrunk uh, by at least a third, if not half in some places. Average age of equipment is approaching 30 years. And so as you talk about, let's say, American youth, you know, wanting to join the military, you know, men and women, and, and doing the things that we would ask them to do. Uh, there's a talent management issue. How do you, you know, entice somebody to come in? There is supporting them with the appropriate equipment sort of issue. Uh, there is freeing up the funding to get them more modern equipment instead of putting them in a 30-year-old platform. Uh, so how do you make the case to America's youth and to the American public about this idea of service and you know providing the resources to make sure that they go out do good and come back home safe and sound you know that that you know, how how do we get somebody to join the military instead of joining you know Apple or Microsoft or uh, General Electric right now and this is a quandary that we struggle with every year and the personnel subcommittee of the armed services committee 
really does a deep dive into this, I think, every single year. And some of those discussions do focus on what can we do to reward younger uh, men and women for joining our services and providing their unique uh, pool of talents and abilities into the areas that we need in our armed services today. Uh, they do get bonuses, and and uh, just in my home state of Iowa, we're becoming very much the um, uh, the Silicon Prairie is what we call ourselves. Uh, taxes are lower in Iowa than California, so we have a lot of companies that are locating in the Midwest, including Google and Facebook and Microsoft, and we have a new Apple campus going in um, West Des Moines. But how do we how do we get those young people to instead of going and, and taking a very high salary, you know, challenge them to serve their country. And it is very difficult. And so we've wrangled with ideas of s significant sign-on bonuses. What do the benefits look like? Can we restructure that? Um, but we, we also need to draw back to the fact that actually many of our youth today, they are still patriots. And we may not see that every single day. And there are times I think we get very jaded um, but we still do have to remember that there are young men and women that truly do want to provide service to their nation, and we can appeal to those those sentiments as well. So beyond looking at what we can do within the personnel structure, how do we do better to recruit and retain our members, but also reminding them that we live in the greatest nation on the face of the planet and they do want to do something to contribute towards that nation. And so those methods of recruiting, we need to focus on, um, but also making sure they understand that when you join our nation's armed services, you will have a Congress, you will have a DOD that will make sure that you have the latest and greatest in technology and advancements. And that's where on the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee, I'm able to contribute to that area, making sure that we are outfitting our men and women with the type of technology that they need. Even with a smaller force, we need to maintain capabilities. And so making that promise to those men and women as they take their oath of office and joining the service, that we will make sure that we are protecting you uh, to every advantage we can possibly provide. Yeah, I think the manpower piece of this is really the good news story. So in our index, you know, we're pretty harsh in our judgment of age of equipment and the size of the military and all that. But to me, it's a testimony of the actual good work that the people are doing. And when you have an aircraft carrier that's extended on deployment and the 5,000 men and women, you know, are going that much further and the 80-hour work weeks and those kinds of things, you know, it, I mean, it's people are at the heart of these sorts of organizations, Absolutely. so we appreciate it. Absolutely. I know you have to get going. So uh, yeah, certainly thank, thank everybody for uh, showing up and the senator uh, yeah. uh, contributing her remarks here and your support out of Congress. And I believe that uh, Tom Spohr, General Spohr, is going to Take care of you and the secretary, unless you'd like to stay Wonderful. around for some more. Wonderful. Well, and so I will close. At, with the secretary here, I, I would normally say, go Army, beat Navy. Um, but today I'm going to reserve that, and we're going to say, go Nats, beat Astros. Okay? Thank you, everybody, very much. So doing a bit of a transition here, I'm uh, Dakota Wood, uh, work here at Heritage for a while, uh, six years, and it's just been a real pleasure to help put together uh, this year's index and update. 
And uh, um, uh, I don't know if this is going to be the, uh, the real show, the index, or if the lunch that occurs afterwards. Uh, we got some, I think it's um, like uh, filet mignon sliders or something like that on tap. So I'm looking forward to it and try to speed through this thing. Uh, what we're going to do is, uh, is uh, talk about the highlights of the index. I'm going to have a lot of slides, but uh, they're not really meant to be read. They're illustrative of the sorts of materials uh, that are inside uh, this tome. Um, I can't tell you how, how proud I am uh, of the effort that goes in uh, to putting this thing together by our whole team, from Elizabeth Fender and our creative that does everything from cover design and all the materials to get out there, Maria Susser and her team on the uh, website, which is just uh, absolutely amazing, uh, 22 authors that contribute to putting this thing together. Uh, we've got over 2,000 footnotes, so when you think about going through 500 pages and that amount of writing, um, that uh, Teresa Penafather and Bill Poole, uh, who read, read every word of this, and I know that Bill in particular will check every single footnote in the entire document to make sure that what we say is there is actually there and it's not behind a, a paywall or anything like that. So it's just an incredible team effort uh, that brings us together every year. and We're very happy to uh, share it. And clearly uh, the um, point of all of this is to talk about the status of American military power. And uh, for me, the watchword on this has to do, and my clicker isn't working, so I'm not really sure what the problem is with that. Um, but it, it has to do with the, uh, the purpose of having a military to begin with. So if you could hit to the next slide, there we go. That we maintain a military force for a sole reason. You know, there are, there are secondary and, and, and tertiary types of things, you know, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, and that sort of thing. But if you believe that America has a role in the world and we have interests that are global, uh, do you have a military that can actually do what's needed to protect your interests, to defeat foes that are trying to take something from you to, for, to defend the homeland? So when, when we assess the status of American military power, it's always with this sort of statement in mind, right? And so we look at, again, the United States is a global entity uh, and uh, where it's at in the world. So we go through and try to put this together. We think that our work has been well-received. We have almost 3 million page views since uh, the first release, uh, in excess of 1.7 uh, million uh, unique users. So you know, if you look at IP addresses, how many people are coming to it that are new and fresh, and all the other things that I talked about in there. We go through something like 99 uh, major platform programs for the military and try to make this publicly accessible. Uh, there's a lot of information across DOD and budget and accounting organizations, and you just have to be a wizard to know where to go to look for it all. And so if you're just a regular person like any of us, uh, you just don't have time or really awareness of where to go. So we try to take and, and compile all this into a one document. Uh, it's the only thing like it uh, that we've been able to find in the whole world. We use uh, uh military power, or um, what's the name of the uh, document? Balance of Power, thank you, uh, also does an extraordinary work at tabulating and, and totaling up who has what uh, in every country around the world, but they don't provide context. And so that's what we try to do with this. Uh, we find that it's been used across uh, the federal government uh, on the Hill, uh, certainly within DOD and by uh, you know, the average American citizen. And uh, that's really uh, what we take as a point of pride, and we're very transparent in our methodology. There are judgment calls that are made in there. Uh, we don't measure everything in the military. We look at the hard combat power and figure if you can have a certain number of planes or tanks or ships, there's an entire pyramid 
underneath that that makes that possible. You know, medical support, logistics, uh, communications, architectures. So to have what we suggest the U.S. needs to have to service its interests, again, on a global stage against multiple competitors, implies that you would have all those other resources made available as well. Um, when we talk oftentimes about military things, unless you've spent a career in the military, it's really hard to understand some of the language, some of the components uh, that go into national security. And so in each one of these editions, we try to have essays uh, where we have very knowledgeable scholars uh, that, that to try to make a complicated issue accessible to the general public. So what is national security? What are special operations forces? Why is the Army different from the Air Force? A lot of it has to do with the domain. You know, it's different conducting operations on land than it is in the air and outer space. And so these essays, uh, I think that they don't get enough attention. I think they're absolutely essential to understanding why we need to spend 700 or $800 billion and have the military that we actually do. So we've got a terrific set of essays uh, in this particular um, issue. Half a dozen authors contributed to them, everything from being realistic about strategy to how the American public feels about spending on defense. Is cyber a real challenge or not? Uh, what about all these alliances? You know, they get a lot of bad press, but uh, they're absolutely uh, incredibly important. And then uh, Tom Earhart, I believe, is here. Where are you at, Tom? Uh, wrote one of our essays on the pathologies of victory. So we win the Cold War, uh, yeah, you won. Uh, but does that then make you complacent, right? Does it make you kind of lazy in thinking that you can take on all challengers, especially when we've been defeating terrorist organizations and then a modernized China pops up? So there are things that need to think about. And these are the sorts of things and topics that these essays get into. I mentioned the program assessments. Again, don't read the fine print. You'll see it in the book. Uh, but if you wondered about where we're at on F-16s and where the F-35 is and replacing those things, or Columbia-class uh, SSBN, uh, ballistic missile submarine, and how that relates to other Navy programs, it's all in here. We scored about whether we think a program is healthy or whether we think a piece of gear is too uh, old uh, or is new and coming into service. So that, again, is also a resource. So bringing us back to this discussion about the role and purpose of American power, um, when we think through that, it really has to do with separating the decision to use a military force from having the military force available uh, in the event that you would actually need it, right? So whether there was uh, wise or foolish to go into a pick a country, uh, to stay in a country for a number of years or to come out after three months, these are political decisions that are made. And they're made in the context of a geopolitical environment and what's going on back here at home. But if you don't even have the military available, those options aren't even on the table. So if China moved on Taiwan and you didn't have a robust U.S. naval presence in the Western Pacific, there's nothing you can really do. So what we try to separate in the document is talking about the reality of American hard power and then how that is used can be talked about in other forums, you know, the policy decisions that go along with that. Uh, so do new technologies completely supplant old things? Are old things still needed and the new things are actually additive? Does your force have to grow to account for that? Does the budget have to adjust along with it? So these, again, are the sorts of themes that we get into it. And we also try to um, have this historically rooted. And if you go back all the way to the American Revolution, uh, you know, 200 some odd years now, right? 
you find that in America's history, about every 15 or 20 years, we're in a major war. So irrespective of decade, technology, uh, which political party is controlling Congress or the White House, things happen in the world that cause the United States to, to have to or want to get involved in some way, and it's about every 15 years. So to think that today we will never go to war with another major state you know, five or 10 years from now is just an absolute fiction. And so we think that the, the time horizons, since they are unknown, you need to be ready. With modern technologies, warfare will likely erupt fairly rapidly and be quick and violent. You don't have time to rebuild uh, like you did perhaps in the 1930s. So Europe is awash in war for three years before the United States gets involved. And there is time and ability to kind of ramp up and then get to this distant theater you know, under steam, right? Uh, the world has changed. And so we really are focused on the readiness, the capability, and the capacity of the current U.S. military to deal with that world. Uh, no surprises. This is the bottom line up front, right? The bluff. We think that in terms of the world as a place in which our military would operate, it's a pretty favorable place. We are a lot of places. We have great friendships. We have access to modern infrastructure like ports and airfields. You know, so if we needed to go someplace and work alongside partners, it's a pretty favorable set of circumstances to do that. On the competitor side, uh, we've got serious actors who are investing serious money and developing serious capabilities. So modern technologies are kind of a leveler. Uh, we find that uh, when it's applied to sensors, communications, and especially weaponry, um, you can buy a lot more precision-guided weapons uh, than you can for the price of a single platform. So in that correlation of forces, instead of comparing a ship versus a ship, you have to worry about your ship versus an anti-ship cruise missile. And I can buy a 1,000 cruise missiles for the price of one ship. So when we look, again, across these various regions, we find that it's a very troubling uh, set of trends because our uh, competitors, our opponents, uh, uh, potential adversaries, have really been muscling up. They're introducing new things, and uh, the U.S. military is trying to uh, keep old things going for longer while we try to figure out what those new solutions are. So then the final score on the military, uh, we chose the word marginal uh, intentionally. If you said it was just okay, then perhaps you get the sense that it's okay. You know, we're doing good enough, and you know, if you could do better, that would be good. But it's really marginal. Uh, if you have two major opponents, like a Russia or a China, different sides of the globe, do you have to pick between one or the other? If you have to commit U.S. Uh, attention and resources against one and you don't have any leftover to deter behavior by the other in a different part of the world, then you've opened up uh, opportunities for exploitation. So we buy into the two-war construct, not that we perceive you're going to be fighting two wars at one time, but it gives you the wherewithal to, to be credibly deterrent against major competitors in one part of the world and still have the ability to do something similar. Or if you had to commit to a war, you've got the resources to do that and still hold off uh, opportunistic exploitation in some other region. So when we look at that, uh, the size of our military, the age of its equipment, irrespective of the hard work put in by the people who operate all that and deploy, we're marginal. Uh, and I'll explain a bit more of that here in a, in a few slides. So uh, budget constraints are a big deal. 
Um, if we were spending 5% of GDP like we were in the Cold War on a $20 trillion economy, your baseline defense budget would be $1 trillion. I mean, that would have been average uh, 25 years ago. But because the Cold War ends, we have the happy decade of the 90s. It's all counterterrorism and counterinsurgency against opponents that have no armies, navies, air forces. Uh, we were able to do what we're able to do uh, without missing a beat. And so it becomes in the American psyche, you know, in the congressional spending patterns, that we're able to do things uh, for much less uh, cost than would actually be the case if you were going to war against a major competitor. So again, I'll elaborate a bit more about that. But world's basically a favor, uh, favorable place. Our competitors have been very serious and muscling up. Uh, our military is doing pretty well with the resources it has, but it doesn't have enough to do all the things that we would need it to do in an era of great power competition. When we uh, use graphics in the index, it's meant to really uh, illustrate in a compelling way a lot of text that precedes and follows it, right? So when we look at spending patterns, you all probably heard about the 2% spending objective by NATO partners, how many are actually spending at 2% and how many aren't. And what we find when we look at maps is that those that are closest to a perceived threat uh, take security matters a bit more seriously than those that are further away. So no surprise to us that countries up in the Baltic area uh, are really dedicating a lot of resources. Those that are much further away, uh, like on the Iberian Peninsula, they're in Spain and all, uh, much less serious about committing resources to their national security portfolio. So from a U.S. perspective and how we look at American military power, can you really count on partners to contribute in ways that mean that you don't have to spend as much yourself. But if your partners are comparatively weak and they don't have deployable combat power, uh, then don't you need to sp spend more yourself to make sure that your interests are protected? That's one of these issues, right? It's why I think the president it continues to pound the table, and not just President Trump, but President Obama and President George W. Bush. I mean, going all the way back several administrations trying to encourage our partners in key areas of the world to do more for themselves because it eases the burden on everybody. I think in Japan, they're still at 1% of GDP. So if we wanted to do something in the Western Pacific, it's the United States. And maybe we get some intelligence support, but in terms of usable, deployable military power, you just don't see a lot of that around the world. Again, when we look at kind of a U.S. return to Europe, uh, waking up to a very muscular Russia, that has invaded neighboring countries like Ukraine and um, uh, Georgia, uh, has been much more active in the Arctic, uh, penetrating the air spaces and the sea spaces and territorial waters and air uh, against uh, NATO's northern flank and all that. We want to send things back, but the conditions have changed so much. It used to be that the Air Force had, I think it was 29 tactical squadrons, fighter squadrons in Europe. Today they have six. We used to have a very robust uh, U.S. Army presence in Germany and other countries. Today, we only have two brigades that are permanently situated, and the Army is trying to do what it can in terms of rotating a heavy armor brigade there, being on site for a few months, coming back, but being replaced by another one. So when you take one armor brigade and you spread it across half a dozen countries, you're talking about a company or a battalion here or there, you look across the border areas and you see the robust presence of Russia doing what it's doing. 
And so again, what we try to do in the index is provide context, provide geostrategic settings and realities so that when we think about military power, what we're spending on it, what we're buying and how much of that, you then apply that against a map, uh, how it's distributed, and not just in one region, but globally, and the numbers can be very, very revealing. We've seen great trends uh, in using the Army as an example, in, in improving current readiness of the force. They've nearly doubled the number of brigade combat teams that the Army assesses itself as being ready, that we can send them into the fight. They've spent a lot of money and effort with the National Guard brigades as well, and we give them credit for four of those. So it's a more ready Army, but it's still too few brigades to do the things that historically the Army is called upon to do. And it's the same sort of situation with Air Force squadrons and Navy ships and Marine Corps battalions and squadrons, right? So there is a people component, a readiness component, but then you look at the equipment side of that and that other graphic. It shows that you know, for our 109 Paladin, uh, it has a particular range. It was brought into service 20 or 30 years ago. When you look at either partner countries or competitor countries, uh, the Army is outranged in basic artillery systems. And I know that this is a priority for the Army, but how do you develop a new uh, either towed or self-propelled artillery piece? Uh, where do you get the new technologies and the money to develop those sorts of things? So you can have a really well-trained current force that is equipped with old gear that you find yourself outranged by the enemy. So if you can't even close with the opponent, all of your good training uh, then becomes questionable. So we will try to look at the totality of the force. Uh, in another setting, if you go shift your eyes to Asia, we see China and its Belt and Road Initiative. It is all over the map that realizes that providing funding at exorbitant interest rates, that it gives money to countries that wouldn't have otherwise have it, it gives us access, gives them access to ports and airfields and road networks, trading partners that become dependent on uh, Chinese largesse. That means you have access to regions. So when we look at our Navy, uh, that previous slide, talk about uh, uh, China already at 300 ships, uh, add in another 175 Coast Guard vessels that are armed, uh, land-based anti-ship cruise missiles, land-based maritime patrol aircraft that can reach out to the sea. We look at China's situation with that kind of weight, and in five years they'll have 350 ships. Uh, our Navy today has 290, uh, better than half, something like 57% are ships that are greater than 20 years old, and most of that older uh, shipping uh, is in your big classes, cruisers, uh, uh, SSBNs, your ballistic missile submarines, attack submarines, almost all of our carriers, right? So the big weighty sorts of things. The newer gear are smaller ships, littoral combat ships, uh, the new Ford class that's uh, trying to get underway these days, and some of the newer Virginia class submarines, right? So we look at the size of our Navy and its age and its capability and where that age is in those classes. And then we see how much of that can be deployed into a given region. So let's say you had 300 ships in the U.S. Navy, only a third of it is actually available. And so those 90 or 100 ships are, are deployed on a global basis. So it's a small percentage that goes against the Chinese presence in the, uh, in the Pacific area. And this is where we try to use, again, different graphs to show that. It takes three weeks to sail from the U.S. West Coast to the South China Sea. Three weeks, right? U.S. 7th Fleet has roughly 
50 ships assigned to it. Uh, more ships are sent there on rotational basis, so perhaps you have 60 or 70 ships on any given day or week in that region going up against the totality of China's Navy and a pretty good chunk of Russia's Navy there in the, uh, the Northern Pacific area. So again, it's comparing things. You have context of where our military power is relative to the opponent that you might have to use that military power against. And so it causes us some concern and leads us to scores like marginal in terms of capacity and modernization within the U.S. military. On the aviation side, you know, your history comes back to bite you, right? Uh, before 1992, we were buying, on average, 500 aircraft a year. Because when you fly a plane to maintain pilot proficiency, every hour is an hour that's been expended in the usable life of that aircraft. So even in training, you're using up the lifespan of the airplanes, but you have to train. So as you train, as you conduct actual real-world operations, you're using up those platforms, and you need to buy new stuff to replace those. Cold War ends, decade of the 90s, we buy almost nothing. Procurement holiday. When we started buying new platforms again in around 2000, we now average less than 100. So how can you buy one-fifth of the airplanes you did you know, 10 years before, right at the end of the Cold War, and think that you're going to be able to maintain sufficient capacity in air power? And when you look at, again, the relative ages, where we have lost ground in the types of platforms. Uh, some of our refueling platforms are better than 40 years old. I think I mentioned average age of US fighters about 28 or 29 years old. F-15Cs, which constitute the majority of air superiority platforms, are about 90% used up. So funding does not support the production and introduction of new equipment at a pace that offsets the loss and the aging of some of these legacy systems. Uh, again, the operating environment shifting now into these assessments. We've got a chapter that looks at key regions of the world. It's not that we ignore some areas like Latin America, South America, or Africa, but when we look at core critical national interests, threat to the homeland in an existential sort of way, uh, a major region that could be plunged into war uh, and what that implies, uh, or our uh, loss of access uh, for freedom of navigation in the seas and the air. If you want to have wealth and jobs here at home, you have to have trading partners, access to markets, and the rest of the global trading community has to be able to operate rather unfettered. So being pushed out of a region is important. Being able to win a war is important, and defending the homeland is important. So we looked at Europe, Middle East, and Asia because of those areas. Uh, where U.S. interests align with or can compete with major competitors. And again, when we look at the, uh, the nature of the world, because of our relationships and presence, it's a pretty good place. When we look at the threats, you've been reading the newspapers, China and Russia have been making substantial investments. And it's just easier to have a newer force when you're starting essentially from scratch. So coming out of the Cold War, Russia was on its heels. Uh, goes through a decade of trying to find itself, a lot of bad experiences from their perspective going into Georgia where they had broken down equipment all, everywhere. Uh, they were able to be successful from their perspective uh, because they were going up against the country of Georgia, right? But you now see where they're at. Multiple launch rocket systems, 1,000-mile cruise missile strikes into Syria, air-to-ground coordination, uh, bordering on fifth-generation platforms, 
um, thermobaric warheads. Uh, they're renewing their nuclear capabilities. So Russia is very, very serious about rearming itself and being seen as credible on a global stage. Similarly with China, uh, everybody can dismiss the uh, value or utility of an aircraft carrier. China is building its third, and it's going to be a flat top. So they think that uh, you know, deep draft aircraft carrier sorts of capabilities are very important in its world. Uh, they have just thousands of shore-based, short and medium-range uh, missiles uh, that impact their, their ability to impact the area. They've built and militarized islands in the South China Sea, muscling uh, partners out of fishing areas and all those sorts of activities. So in terms of serious investment, uh, very, very concerning at the highest level there, very formidable capabilities. Uh, they are not experienced, the Chinese are, in warfare, but they have been studying our playbook for a quarter century. They've seen what America did in Desert Storm in 91, what we did in Iraqi Freedom in 2003, how we've conducted operations nearly uh, some, um, without uh, any kind of break for the last 18 years in different regions, and they tried to develop counters to that. How would they do things differently to blunt U.S. advantages? So the behavior, uh, very muscular, I keep using that word, but I think it's an apt um, a descriptor, and they are very formidable in their military capabilities. Because remember, if America had to go to war or push back in a particular region, it's a percentage of our force against the totality of theirs. And I think that discussion is often missing uh, in the United States debate over defense spending and adequate numbers and those sorts of things. Iran and North Korea, uh, two different things. North Korea pretty much operates in isolation. You don't have a lot of partners, you know, aligning with North Korea to help them out or whatever. Uh, but they're serious about maintaining a hold on power. Uh, Kim Jong-un uh, you know, is loath to let go of nuclear weapons. We don't see any movement to denuclearize the North Korean arsenal because uh, for him, uh, that is an absolute guarantee of his safety and, and hold security uh, there in North Korea. Iran is much more subtle. It works through surrogates and proxies. It extends its influence by supporting various militia groups from Iran, uh, one direction into Afghanistan, the other direction across Iraq, Syria, uh, and down into uh, Lebanon. Uh, so it uses money, uh, the ability to provide advisory support and material support uh, to extend its influence in its great contest between Shia and Sunni, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Clearly, our interests get caught up in that mix. Uh, but both of them, behavior-wise, uh, are pretty serious. Iran, uh, much more capable, I believe, in their region than North Korea. North Korea is focused on the Korean Peninsula. Iran seems to be more regionally focused and extending its hand much more broadly. So we get into more detail and the actual pages of material that discuss this. And when we look at terror groups, no single terror group poses an existential threat to the United States. So why do we even include them? Um, well, a terror attack in a shopping mall in the United States is a very bad day. We don't want to see that happen. But it's a bit different than having a deep nuclear bench uh, like a major state like Russia or China is. So there is a difference. We include them here because of the destabilizing impact they can have on critical regions. They open up opportunities for states to step in. So where you see something like an al-Qaeda, uh, Nusra Front, which has been retitled uh, these days, um, uh, Islamic State, um, uh, al-Shabaab, uh, all these sorts of groups cause mayhem in their respective regions. And it, it undermines and destabilizes <coughs> governments, rule of law, 
stabilizing influences such as economic development, and it creates windows of opportunity uh, for larger, more nefarious actors to come in. So we have to track these entities and see what they're doing, uh, who's funding them, and how they're behaving, and we address that here in the index as well. Uh, so you should put it all up on a giant uh, slide. We see that over time, uh, since our first index in 2015, uh, people or entities have matured in their capabilities, even if they haven't changed their behavior very much. So if I've got a dominant position, and I kind of hold that position in my behavior with my neighbors, but I continue to invest and mature my material capability, my military capability, it makes it a much tougher problem for the United States. So on the whole, we think the, the threat environment is high. Uh, again, if you buy, which we do, that we're in back into an era of great power competition, whereas in the Cold War, there were two capitals involved, Moscow and Washington. Now you have a multiplayer game. So the United States dealing with a Russia, a China, Iran, and North Korea, and the destabilizing influences of uh, terrorism writ large, and yet our military is two-thirds the size that it was back then. So uh, there is a problem in this math uh, equation here, and this is what we try to uh, talk about. As we get into the military services, a uh, real quick slide on each. Uh, the, the standard or general theme across the services is readiness. The services have invested a lot of time and energy into improving the readiness of the current forces. And we see that as a terrific positive trend uh, for them to be able to sustain that over time. They're just going to have to have uh, funding that goes along with that. And uh, we hope that Congress provides the resources and that the administration uh, continues to ask for those things so that the readiness of pilots, uh, of uh, soldiers, sailors, Marines, Coast Guardsmen uh, can ma be maintained. Where we see challenges usually are in the programmatics. Uh, so you have a capacity of the force. None of the services are expanding their size because people are expensive. Um, you have to recruit them, you have to maintain them, provide compensation packages. So it's hard to expand the forces. Uh, but uh, the other part to that is the equipment side. I mentioned some of the equipment ages. A lot of the equipment across the services, and again, the Army as an example, was introduced in the late 80s, uh, early 1990s. So the Abrams main battle tank has had component upgrades over time, there's not even a replacement tank on the books, and the Army thinks that they will continue to have this until the year 2050. So we're talking a 70-year platform uh, when Russia and China and others are improving their capabilities. So these are a material side, a capacity side, continue to be problematic for the Army, even though readiness has been uh, on the upswing. On the Navy, um, again, we had a lot of collisions in the past. The Navy's gotten serious about training their sailors, basic seamanship skills, uh, and, and getting uh, healthy that way. They still have a terrific backlog in maintenance. Uh, when you have a few number of ships and you've been underfunded in your maintenance accounts, and you're dealing with 100-year-old shipyards, you can't help but start to lose ship availability. It means that the ships that are working are used longer and harder. They then break down, and the cost to repair and maintain those things go up. So it's kind of a death spiral in terms of material readiness, uh, ship availability, if you could get more ships into the water, either by building them or, or having a better repair rate, you would lessen the load on the ships that are currently being used. So again, programs, especially for the Navy, are important. Uh, they're very problematic. 
uh, colleagues of ours like uh, Eric Labs and Ron O'Rourke attract this thing um, uh, very uh, closely on the Navy side. I would say that the Navy's plans and their backlog would actually indicate they need about a 30% increase in funding in their ship accounts. Uh, you know, you all have been tracking the national budget levels. Uh, do we see those kinds of funds forthcoming? Uh, Navy has Columbia-class uh, ballistic missile submarine that's out there, Ford-class carriers. Uh, they want to increase um, uh, the production of, uh, of uh, fast-attack submarines, uh, new class of frigates, and uh, the integration of Marine Corps and Navy needs implies whole new classes of ships that are smaller uh, that you can get into congested waters and conduct distributed operations. So there are warning clouds on the horizon in terms of the programmatics and material capabilities uh, within the Navy, even if they're getting back to some basic seamanship skills. On the Air Force, I've already talked about aircraft age, problematic. Not introducing new aircraft sufficiently fast enough to offset the aging of the legacy platforms. <clears throat> they're trying to deal with their pilot shortage by dramatically increasing throughput, but we are very concerned that they're trading quality for quantity. Uh, J.V. Venable will be one of the panelists up here in a very short uh, number of minutes and could talk more about this. But when you have a, a near 100% graduation rate through your pilot school, either everybody is so good that you never have any failures or you're writing standards slip uh, that doesn't, doesn't filter out people who are maybe marginal flyers. So when you have a pilot shortage, you need people. Are you sacrificing the quality of the individuals just to get the numbers up? And I think that uh, warrants some questions, perhaps, for our Air Force colleague here in just a few minutes. Uh, within the Marine Corps, again, same as the other services, terrific investment in readiness. Uh, General Berger coming in as a new commandant this summer, issued his planning guidance, and he said, we have to question everything that we're doing in terms of old conventional amphibious operations, the types of platforms we've been using, how we are arrayed around the globe, and we need to shift our focus to China as a pacing threat, distributed operations in the Indo-Pacific region, and figure out how we're gonna fight and win inside a weapons engagement zone. So already inside China's first island chain uh, where things are pretty lethal. So it calls into question a lot of perhaps Marine Corps programs. It certainly emphasizes the dependency of the Marine Corps on the Navy. So if the Navy can't adjust its ship or fleet architectures and the types of ships it has in the water, how does the Marine Corps think that they're going to do the things that they think they need to do, right? So there are these cross-service dependencies which need to be accounted for. Readiness good uh, certainly has improved that. Capacity is lacking. The Marine Corps would say, uh, we've never been a two-war force. We will only be a one-war force and focus on a region. It could be that the geopolitical situation today uh, actually calls for that. The Marine Corps focuses no exclusively on the Indo-Pacific area. <clears throat> but you never know what's going to happen. We could have a major war in, in uh, some other part of the world. The Marine Corps could be called upon. It can't abandon its posts elsewhere. So we think history shows that we need a larger Marine Corps somewhere in the mid-30s in terms of number of battalions and then related increases in aviation and logistical support. Uh, when I came in, uh, many years ago, we had 27 battalions. Uh, the Marine Corps is now down to 24. And so you just don't have as many movable pieces on the chessboard that you can call upon to uh, service uh, combatant command interests. On the nuclear side, a uh, pretty good news story. If uh, taken uh, the uh, decay of some of our nuclear capabilities, 
uh, to heart within Congress and have applied money against modernizing delivery systems, right? The, the aircraft and the missile bodies, those kinds of things get a warhead where you might want it to be. Unfortunately, that sort of investment or reinvestment and recapitalization is not occurring across the infrastructure, the labs, storage facilities, uh, testing is still at the component level. Uh, you know, we have a moratorium on uh, yield-producing experiments, uh, so the data that you might want to have to make sure that things are going to work uh, as you think that they're going to work uh, is all computerized, and so it's really kind of a best guess. Um, the aging of the workforce as well. There aren't too many people. Where's Michaela at? Are you on here? Uh, do we have anybody in the nuclear manpower pool that has experienced a yield-producing experiment? <clears throat> yeah, maybe Michaela. I don't know. Very few. So, uh, again, it's an age and experience sort of thing. Are you bringing in new talent? Are they uh, incentivized uh, to work in this kind of a field uh, if the field is rather static? Uh, meanwhile, our competitors like China and Russia modernizing a new entrance to the nuclear club like North Korea, uh, Iran, who knows what's going on? They don't allow any inspectors into their military sites which is actually where they're doing most of their development. So uh, it's anybody's guess as to the actual state of affairs on Iranian nuclear programs. So we need to get serious about this. On par, it's in that marginal field, has seen some progress, but more is absolutely needed. So overall, uh, we think we have a one-war force. If we had to go someplace in the world to secure a critical U.S. national interest or be there for a treaty ally, we could do that, but we would need to globally source the force and it would take everything we've got. And because of a reduced industrial capacity, a reduced number of spares, a lack of platforms that can survive in a high threat environment, we're not quite sure how long that kind of an operation could be sustained over time. So again, it's another thing to think about when we think about the investment in the U.S. military, its capacity, and the types of tools that it has. So um, I'm going to go ahead, and I believe we can stop there. Uh, happy to entertain any questions you might have for the next few minutes, uh, but we are going to shift to a panel discussion where we will have uh, General Spore as a moderator and then uh, have colleagues that deal with aerospace. Uh, J.V. Venable will be doing that. Con Kitchen uh, will talk about cyber and high-tech and all kinds of artificial intelligence sorts of things. Michaela Dodge. Uh, we'll be talking about our nuclear complex, missile defense and all, and then Fred Bartels and talk about uh, defense budgeting, national budget picture, and those sorts of things. So if you have a detailed question on a specific service in one of those areas, we'll save that for the panel. If you have a question about the index or kind of our view of the world and various trends, I'm happy to address those right now. Otto. Budget. Right. Okay. And so the services look like they're making the choice with the limited budget they expect. They want to modernize and, and you know, increase capability and sacrifice capacity. How do you view that judgment? Well, you know, the commandant said that. He said he would trade capacity in order to free up money for modernization uh, and to be able to do the experimentation, concept development, those sorts of things. So they are having to make tough calls. 
And it will never be the case where, you, where you're never in a position that you don't have to make a tough call. I mean, there's just not unlimited funding, right? Uh, but what we are doing is saying, based on the United States history, the history of warfare, uh, how often and uh, we looked at, again, uh, uh, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraqi freedom, uh, we get involved and how much it takes for the United States. All of these big instances where we, as a, as a country, committed significant combat power. And when you account for um, all the various factors that influence that, it's almost the same size force. So regardless of technology, regardless who the opponent is, your enemy, it's almost the same size force. So going to the two-war bit then, uh, if it would take almost the totality of what we have, again, Air Force, 29 squadrons, uh, fighter squadrons in Europe back in the Cold War. Today, there are a total of 32 squadrons in the active component of the entire U.S. Air Force, right? So what we're saying is the military needs to be bigger. It needs to have something other than 30 or 40-year-old platforms, and it needs to be able to train sufficiently that it's competent. Because if you want to deter bad behavior by somebody else, if they don't view you as competent, then there's no deterrence. And so you're actually incentivizing bad behavior that leads to war. So from the Heritage Foundation's perspective, uh, we talk about what is needed, the urgency of that need, and the role of the federal government to provide for the common defense. Where that money comes from, I'm going to say it's not our problem, but, you know, um, we have a federal budget of, what, $3.1 trillion or something, and we actually spend $4.2 or something along those lines. So the administration, members of Congress are not, I don't believe, being honest with the American public about what it actually costs to be a United States citizen, to enjoy our way of life, uh, to have a global trading environment, to be able to sell our goods abroad and have partners that are in other regions, right? And military power is a part of that, and we've been squandering lots of resources in areas that are not necessary from a federal government standpoint and haven't been applying resources where it, are, where it is necessary. So I, I sympathize with the services. They operate in a different framework than we do. You know, they take political direction, and uh, they're going to say uh, what they need or uh, how they can best utilize the resources that have been given them after they've made their, their case. We're not bound by the same rules. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, Pat Spann, just myself, retired active reserve That's army the best guy. That's position to be in, isn't it? Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, yes, as long as the pensions keep coming. The, um, I was uh, dumbfounded when recently they said 70% of the military-age youth aren't qualified to serve. And I'm wondering, has there been any talk, serious talk, of having uh, some sort of compulsory, you know, government service, not just military, but, you know, uh, Peace, Peace Corps, Ed Corps, whatever. I see that every now and then, but has there been anything, anything serious about having some sort of uh, one, two-year commitment by American youth? So I will briefly address the second part of that. General Spohr actually wrote a fantastic paper on that problem of 70-some-odd uh, percent of American youth between certain age brackets aren't even eligible. And I'd ask him to probably make a comment about that in a minute. On the National Service, it's very appealing. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, so let's pick 1989, 1990 as a, as a reference point, the American population has grown by a third, going from 240 million or so to 
$330 million. Uh, the U.S. military has shrunk by a third. So you have these divergent trend lines. What that means is, is that there are ever fewer opportunities for the average American citizen to have any exposure or touch point to military sorts of things. More people uh, that, if they all wanted to, would have less opportunity to, to join the military in some way, right? So fewer touch points. Um, the narrative, for lack of a better word, uh, on the United States, you know, is there something uh, worth serving? You know, committing your place to. So this idea of service is, in some ways, has fallen by the wayside. So the idea of national service or compulsory service has um, a very appealing quality to it. Uh, what it doesn't come across in those conversations is, how do we fund it, and what do we want these kids to do? So if you brought in, um, I don't know, I looked at the numbers once, it was something like uh, 8 million high school males graduate a year or something along those lines. So if you wanted all of them to have, you know, a year or two years of service, what am I going to do with 8 million 18-year-old boys, right? Um, they've got to have something to do. I need a supervisory echelon. Where are they going to live, right? So I need to have some kind of housing, productive work for them to do. I mean, so there's a cost that comes along with that. If it's military-related, um, warfare today is complex. The systems we use are not 1938, you know, Ford trucks rolling off an assembly line. Uh, it takes a while to train somebody. Uh, basic training goes anywhere from, you know, three to four months. And then you go into an occupational skills training thing, which can be three months to a year, depending on what you're wanting to do. So it could very well be the case that the first year of compulsory service is just getting somebody up to speed, and then what's my return on the investment, you know? I mean... Um, so can national service be thought of in other ways, you know, working in the parks, right, um, educating, you know, youth, whether it's in inner cities or suburbs or Appalachia or whatever you want to talk about, right? So there are other ways to serve, and there was a U.S. commission on national service uh, that is getting, I think, ready to issue its final report on the totality of this. Different ways of serving, different ways to think about serving. Uh, is it mandated uh, or is it offered? Uh, and then how do you connect high school juniors and seniors to these service opportunities? So, uh, sir, if you could talk. You're right. You're right when you say 70% don't qualify. The main reasons for that are obesity and poor health, unfortunately. And so Heritage Foundation does not advocate for compulsory service. I came in the military not in a time of compulsory service, but when people that had come in under that were still in the military in um these were people that didn't really want to be in the military, and it showed. And so we, we pride ourselves in having a military that is highly motivated, highly skilled, and conscript, a conscript military doesn't really uh, support that idea. It works in some places like Israel because everybody in the country has a shared understanding of the threats they face. doesn't work as well here. And so we would favor ideas and solutions that reduce the, un, the, the people that uh, are being disqualified. So more health programs in schools and parents and families. And we would, and then there's the, the thing we didn't talk about, and that is the propensity problem. So you have 70% don't qualify to join the military, and then there's a lack of propensity or willingness to serve on in our youth that we have to get after as well. Thanks. Thanks, sir. Um, Pat? Otherwise, Pat Talgett's angry with me. 
uh, thanks, Dakota. Uh, again, uh, once again, a fine piece of work, uh, very skillfully presented. Thank you. Assume, assume the money. You know, like the recipe for chicken soup says, assume a chicken. Assume the money. Do we have the the industrial capacity for the program that's implicit in in this? I realize that may be beyond the scope of of the uh, the index and more Tom's line, but but have you have you looked at that that side of it as a as a limiting or a pacing factor? We we have in various forms. You know, I mentioned the essays. I think last year and the year before we had essays uh, specifically about the defense industrial base and how over time it shrunk. So we're at a point now where uh, we either have single uh, providers of capabilities or no provider of a capability. I think, you know, the missile tubes, uh, Tom Callender's here for Columbia or Virginia both, payload. Both, um, both, 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 um, both and the UK dreadnought. Right. So uh, it is uh, questionable whether we have a company that is even able or willing to make missile tubes for our strategic deterrent force, right, in, in the Navy. Um, if I am at very low levels of production, it is with with not assured funding in the out years. Uh, it is high risk for a manufacturer to expand, you know, to take uh, capital investment as is an owned risk. Uh, expanding the workforce, you know, training a welder or riveter or uh, soldering technician or whatever that might be. So uh, very risk averse because that goes into profit and viability for the company. Uh, one tank manufacturing plant in Lima, Ohio. That's it. One final assembly plant for the F-35 in Fort Worth, Texas. One manufacturer of aircraft carriers, right, in Huntington Ingalls, uh, Newport News. So um, since the end of the Cold War, with the shrinking of the military in size, volatility of funding, uh, start and stop work orders, you find that manufacturers start exiting uh, for greener pastures. You know, we're going to be making cars for 100 years. Why don't I get in supplying light bulbs and brake pads for cars instead of trying to find work uh, for an armored personnel, you know, vehicle, right? So um, I think that uh, there's a lot written about the evil defense industrial, you know, base, money grubbing uh, sorts of guys. Profit margins are not that great, number one. Uh, two, you're dependent on uh, assured funding from Congress, which every year changes. Uh, you only have a single customer. That's the U.S. government on whatever service you're buying or selling you know, the item to. So it's actually a high-risk field, and, uh, and there aren't that many players in it anymore. To get efficiencies, you consolidate, but you consolidate to the point where you have effectively monopolies. And now where does competition come in? Uh, for the sake of efficiencies, uh, Congress refused to fund the second engine manufacturer for the F-35, right? So now you have one manufacturer for a single type of engine. Where is the incentive to continue product improvement or drive down a price point? So I think the defense industrial base is problematic, uh, not because of anything that they're doing. It's because of the shrinking of the customer uh, pool and the volatility of uh, funding along those lines. So I think these are strategic considerations not because it's some kind of a handout, right? It's does the United States want to be able to see to its own interests on a global stage where everybody else is investing heavily? This is a national security uh, matter, and it has to do with the longevity of the United States. And I'm sorry, young lady next to you. And then we'll come up here and then go to the back. Good morning. Thank you so much. I'm Margaret from Georgia, so my question is regional specific. 
Uh, could you please comment about the cooperation between the Turkey and Russia, especially around anti-missile cooperation and growing military cooperation between the NATO member country and um, Russia? Right. Yes, yeah, so it's more of a foreign policy question, right, which has nothing to do with the index. <laughs> um, but what we do is, I mean, how it affects uh, our assessment of U.S. military power is you see alliances change over time, right? Uh, so where Turkey was a significant contributor to the F-35 program, uh, when Turkey as a NATO member decides to, you know, have a relationship with, uh, with Russia, who ostensibly is a major competitor to NATO, it, it causes questions, right? Um, I think the Turkey issue is much more of a European Union sort of matter. The EU has kind of kept Turkey at arm's length. Uh, Turkey has its own interests. It wants to be able to trade. It wants to have, you know big partners and friends, and so if Europe is rejecting Turkey, Turkey's going to turn someplace else. If I'm Russia, I'm looking for any opportunity you know, to extend influence, right? So I think these are all very natural behaviors. It's then incumbent upon the United States, European allies, to say, do you want to drive somebody else into the arms of your competitor, or do you want to bring them in you know, as a team player, right? Uh, so the security environments that do exist Currently in the Middle East, how it impacts Syria, Russian involvement there on the Syria-Turkey border, it's really a foreign policy matter, and uh, we don't address those sorts of things. But what, where we do address is Russian behavior, right, uh, more provocative or less so. We do look at the military strength and reliability and political stability of key partners like Turkey, and from that, we then assess what is the implications for U.S. military power. Do we need more or less? And so where these security situations appear to be compromised, it would imply we need to have a stronger hand, right? Which leads to our, you know, questioning the uh, viability of American military power on a global stage. I think we're at the end. I'm gonna have to cut it off there, but we have a whole panel coming up and uh, they're much smarter than I am. So uh, if we could bring up uh, General Spore and... So, just to give you a feel on the rest of the morning here, we're going to talk. We have a panel. Panel members, start coming up, please. Uh, and then after that, we have got a wonderful reception laid out for you at around 11.30 in our lounge in the back here. I'm told they're going to be things like filet mignon. How do you say that? Filet mignon sliders and chicken empanadas and all kinds of good things like that. So there is a – I know this crowd cannot be bought with food, but if it could – uh, there's going to be some good stuff awaiting us at the end, around 11.30 or so. It's been a wonderful morning so far, and uh, we're going to continue that now with an expert panel. Most of these people on the panel uh, directly contributed to chapters, sections uh, within the index of military strength, so you'll be able to put them on the spot. We'll save a lot of room for questions uh, if you want to go there. And so... What we have here are national security experts from Heritage or a Heritage alumni on the end of the panel there. And so we're lucky to have these folks. They'll each speak for about five to seven minutes, and then we'll save time for questions. Leading off our discussion is going to be Heritage Foundation's policy analyst for defense budgeting, Mr. Fred Bartels, who's going to talk about what's the, what's the outlook for money, which is, you know, if you sensed a theme in what Dakota is talking about and Senator Ernst, it was the criticality of funding. And so Fred at the Heritage Foundation conducts research, writes, and engages audience on the adequacy, composition, and the character of the U.S. defense budget. 
Before joining Heritage, Fred worked as a policy analyst at Concerned Veterans for America and completed his master's degree at George Washington University, and he is a contributor to the index. Next to comment will be Mr. Klon Kitchen, senior research fellow who leads technology policy for the Heritage Foundation. His personal research focuses on the intersection of technology and national security with particular interest in AI, autonomous weapon systems, space and intelligence issues. Before Heritage, Klon was the national security advisor to Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska and also the staff director of the National Security and International Trade and Finance Subcommittee for the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Before his time on the Hill, Klon spent more than 15 years in the United States intelligence community working on counterterrorism, counterproliferation, covert action, and other cyber issues. Next will be Dr. Michaela Dodge, who will cover topics in nuclear deterrence. Michaela authored the chapter on nuclear deterrence in the index, as well as the one on missile defense, while working as a research fellow at Heritage. She is now a research scholar at the National Institute for Public Policy. Before joining the National Institute, Dr. Dodge worked at the Heritage Foundation from 2010 to 2019. She left Heritage for a period of time to serve as Senator John Kyle's Senior Defense Policy Advisor between October and December of 2018. Dr. Dodge received her PhD from George Mason University in 2019 and earned her Master of Science degree in Defense and Strategic Studies from Missouri State in 2011. And then finishing out our panel will be J.V. Venable to my left, who will cover some key topics in the air and space domain. He is the Senior Research Fellow for Aerospace at the Heritage Foundation and the author of the U.S. Air Force Chapter in the Index a 25-year veteran of the Air Force who served in three combat operations and is the former commander of the celebrated Thunderbirds. He has flown the F-16 fighter throughout the United States, Europe, the Pacific, and the Middle East. It's a great panel. I'm excited about it. We're in for a treat. And so as they talk, I would ask you to be thinking about questions you'd like uh, them to consider when we get to that stage. And so, Fred, why don't we start with you, please? Perfect. Uh, thank you, Tom. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around. I know it has been already a long morning. Uh, and I wanted to turn your attention to page 312 of the 2020 index. It's also on the page 312 of the 2019 index and on page 307 of the 2018 index. So in 50% of the index editions, you have a great line that defines the proper context on how to think about the defense budget, which is proper funding is a necessary condition for a capable, modern, and ready force, but it is not sufficient by itself. Uh, so have that in the back of your mind whenever I'm talking about the defense budget or anyone else is talking about the defense budget. Uh, it's just the conduit for a capable force is not the element that is going to determine anyone. And I wish I could claim credit for writing that sentence, but that was there before I joined Heritage. And you should keep that sentence in the index, Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that is probably coincidence. Uh, I have some good news about the recent uh, funding levels. Uh, I have some bad news about the current discussions on, on the budget and some very worrisome news about the future of the defense budget. So on to the good news. Uh, it's a lot of the things that Dakota has discussed in his introduction of the index. There has been a, a new tranche of funding that has been dedicated to readiness. Uh, you see a spike uh, in the accounts that are dedicated to, to, to readiness in O&M, and you see some substantial investments in RDT&E. Uh, 
uh, that means that they're targeting the future, but the future is always uncertain and you never know if you're going to get something from that research that you're investing the money. Uh, the Army has had some really hard lessons on that sense that Tom probably has a lot of battle scars that he can tell you stories about. Um, and those are consumables. So if you do not sustain that level of funding, you're going to see decreases. So, so that is the good news. Uh, the bad news is on the current budgetary picture. Uh, in the beginning of the year, everyone thought that the BCA negotiations were the element that were going to hold up the defense budget. Uh, but there was somewhat <laughs> quick agreement on that. We have a top line for 20 and 21, uh, but that's all we have. Uh, since then, we had a CR to start the, the, the fiscal year on October 1st. We're probably going to have another CR to continue after November 21st. So your Thanksgiving will be stuffed with CRs. Uh, and you're probably going to see that into the new year. <laughs> and if you want to ask all the details about CRs, that's the stuffing, that's Pat Howell from CRS. Uh, so you have the, the set number at 738 for 2020 and 740.5 for 2021. Uh, and the, the biggest obstacle that you've seen now reported in the media that has been the diversion of funds for the wall, but, but that's a completely different question. And that's what I want to talk about is the introduction of the skinny NDA or the backup NDA that has been in the media recently. Uh, there are few ways for you to read that situation uh, that that necessarily means that something went wrong in conference and you see a part going to the media to try to get to the public to get some leverage back into the, the negotiations uh, and when you see that the Senate had a widely bipartisan NDA and the House had a highly partisan NDA with no votes from the minority uh, you can see where the sticking point lies uh, if you follow political science theory, you would assume that the House would need to come to the center to get an ag agreeable bill that would pass both chambers with bipartisan support. But that's not what you have seen play out during the, the conference negotiations. You, you've seen Adam Smith stick to his guns and, and try to hold <coughs> that coalition that he got the votes for, for the NDA in the House floor, which means that there has no minority involvement in the House NDA. And that's why you see the introduction of a skinny NDA to try to gain some traction in the negotiations to show that there's broad agreement on a few pillars and try to work from there. Uh, so that's the not great news. And also especially because the, the House passed their NDA in July, the Senate passed theirs in June, and they're the breakdown in conference has been at late October. So the question that everyone should be asking Congress is, what have you been doing between July and October, other than recess? But that was just August. Uh, so, so that's the near term. And then on the coming five years, you have a, a, a coming problem. If you look at the plans that DOD has laid out for the next fiscal years, uh, there is no growth at all. Uh, former Secretary Mattis and Chairman Dunford outlined uh, a 3 to 5% growth that I think it's on the last slide that Dakota showed before the, the cover uh, through the next five years in order to be able to fulfill all the tasks from the National Defense Strategy. 
that is not in their plan. What you have is actual decreases after 21. Uh, and that those are just by the Pentagon's own numbers. If you go through their real growth assessment, you have a decrease of 2.7% in 21, 0.3 in 22, 0.2 in 23, and 1.5 in 24. So the idea is that you're going to be losing purchasing power capacity over the next five years. Uh, as it stands, and the reason why you hear people talking about the night court process that Secretary Esper has brought from the Army to OSD is that that's how they plan on making up that loss of purchasing power uh, through internal reforms and in just changing what they are trying to, to buy. A lot of the, the cuts in the Army have been in the procurement accounts, uh, but that's not going to be the case when they go to the defense-wide accounts, which is what they are working now, because they're mostly, it's just services and people. And uh, Congress has a big role to play in allowing them to make those changes. Uh, as you all are aware, there are always strong constituencies for the status quo, and those have to be overcome if any changes in the night court are actually going to take place. And I'll end up there and... So we can move on to Klan. Fred, thank you, Fred. That was wonderful. Klan, we'll we'll turn this over to you now. Thank you. As Tom mentioned, um, it's it's my responsibility and privilege to lead tech policy at um, at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm going to keep my remarks uh, brief but sharp because I want to highlight an issue that I think um, is of critical importance for understanding uh, much of what is contained within this index and the broader point that the index is making as it regards. Uh, the very real defense challenges that the United States faces going forward. So put simply, I want to highlight China. China is choosing to use its private sector companies, particularly technology companies, as an extension of that nation's national security enterprise. And this strategy is beginning to realize very real advantages. And the reality is, is that the United States must recognize and confront this strategy if we're going to secure our nation and if we are going to thrive economically going forward. And I want to just give you three observations that I believe kind of illustrate this point. One, China is like every other nation in the sense that it seeks to amass and to leverage international influence for its own strategic aims. That is what nation states do. It's what nation states do within the international system. China is a coherent, rational actor within that system. We should not be surprised that they are doing this. Two, they have rightly concluded that leading in certain technology sectors, particularly 10, which they have identified publicly in specific strategy documents, will be essential to give it the social, economic, political, and military capabilities needed to realize these objectives. Again, this is a rational strategy, one that the United States has assessed as being thoughtful and potentially effective if allowed to be realized the way it is intended to be. Three, China is deliberately <clears throat> fusing its state and industry towards these goals. It is introducing, by doing this, significant distortions in the global economy, and Beijing's own deep integration with our own economy makes this challenge even more difficult. This is not Cold War 2.0. The Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc was never as deeply integrated into our own economy as China is. This requires a new type of thinking. And soon, the Heritage Foundation is going to be 
uh, publishing a China strategy that gets into these in more detail. Um, but much of what Dakota, in just a phenomenal way, laid out this morning illustrates is a new model that China is pioneering. And if it is allowed to succeed, they will export it. And other nations will follow this model. And the distortions will grow. And the difficulties will become more complex than they are even now. And so it's imperative that we take this seriously. Now, the good news is, is that there's every indication that the administration and other defense leaders, especially as identified in this index, are recognizing this challenges, or these challenges and are making uh, deliberate moves to begin addressing it. But more must be done. And so that leaves me <clears throat> with three truths that I think will define our security future, particularly in the context of technology. Number one, the national security burden is migrating into the private sector, and our nation must better leverage our strengths in this arena. There is no avoiding this truth. Two, securing nations means securing networks, and securing networks means securing supply chains. In a globalized economy where supply chains are shared throughout the planet, this is going to be a hard challenge, but one that we will not be able to avoid. And we are beginning to see that as we talk about discussions like 5G and other wireless networking and zero trust networks around the globe and the like. And then finally, the difficult truth that Dakota and others have made very clear in this, in this year's index is that the United States is not inevitable. But we are good. And we are the best placed nation in the world to help many people around the globe, including securing our own interests and our own people. And I'd like to close with the Chinese proverb, <laughs> which says, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. This is good advice. We should take it. Sun Tzu? <laughs> close. Close. OK, good. Uh, Kalan, that was wonderful. And Michaela, over to you, please. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a great delight to be here in my original professional home with my colleagues, and I'm delighted to be back at Heritage. I'm not sure I have that much good news, continuing kind of a trend that my <laughs> colleagues outlined on the panel. Uh, there is a growing gap between our nuclear modernization and sustainment efforts and the reality. Uh, let me take you back to history a little bit because that's relevant to today's debate. In 2010, the Obama administration worked out a um, nuclear weapons modernization and sustainment plan uh, in the 1251 report, in the so-called 1251 report. A big part of that effort was also focused on modernizing the infrastructure that supports our nuclear forces. Now, at the time, the administration assessment was that um, we are living in a more peaceful uh, environment, that Russia is no longer an adversary, and that the potential for conflict was low. Now, trends in Russia's behavior since then have manifested themselves it's in such a negative way that it is very hard to, it is almost impossible to continue our blissful ignorance now, yet when it comes to U.S. nuclear forces, many in Congress act as if things got better, not worse, since 2010. Even funding in 2010-era modernization plan is somehow controversial today in Washington, D.C. Now, mind you, between FY11 and FY16, 
nuclear weapons modernization was underfunded relative to that 1251 report that we worked out in peacetime. Now, not only that, but these cuts were even more damaging because of continuing resolutions and because of budget unpredictability uh, that was caused by Congress. Now, aside from just funding levels, let's look at capabilities that this money was supposed to find uh, to, to buy us now to drive point threats to I'm sorry to drive home Fred's point about focus on just the budget is not enough. So the chemistry and metallurgy research replacement facility, also known as CMRR, uh, it's a facility where the United States uh, would produce plutonium pits that are sort of the heart of a nuclear weapon. President Obama uh, pledged to accelerate that facility uh, in his New START resolution of ratification to the Senate. The facility was canceled. Now, if it wasn't canceled, pits would be rolling out of the production line this <coughs> fiscal year, assuming that it would that the facility would uh, progress as planned. Now, today we're looking at no fewer than 80 pits a year in the 2030 timeframe. That was a long-standing requirement that, by the way, doesn't assume that we will have a massive geopolitical surprise. Now, given NNSA's track record in terms of delivering on time and on budget, it is a very highly challenging proposition. And by the way, our adversaries are not, they're not waiting to produce plutonium pits in the 2030 timeframe. Uh, China uh, is said to be planning on doubling its nuclear stockpile, and that stockpile, that's not what we think they deploy on their delivery systems uh, by, uh, in the next 10 years. Similarly, Russia has a very active and capable plutonium production complex. The uranium processing facility, another facility that the Obama administration pledged to accelerate, was delayed by five by four years, and uh, sort of its production capability was reduced to to a fraction. Now, it's not just the infrastructure; our nuclear warhead sustainment efforts. And I sort of hesitate to call, call it modernization because we haven't built a new warhead in almost 30 years, if not longer. Uh, so sustainment efforts experience delays. And the strategic submarine was delayed by two years in the FY13 budget. Now, speaking of delivery systems, we don't have much margin when it comes to replacing current legs of the strategic triad. So bombers, strategic submarines, Intercontinental Range Ballistic Missiles, or ICBMs for short. In fact, the ground-based strategic deterrent will be coming into the ground after the current Minuteman 3s that have been there, there since 1970s start to age out. Similarly, the Ohio-class submarines will be coming uh, into the water after the current, sorry, Columbia-class will be coming into the water after current Ohio class, class um, re retires. And so we will be operating a mix of brand new and very, very old systems all at the same time. Well, guess when programs have most of their trouble? And what is our 
hedging strategy or hedging capability if we indeed do experience some of these issues. Now, prudence would call us to think sort of strategically uh, about these problems, but we are not very good at that. Where are we? Well, the funding for the ICBM replacement is a major point of contention in this year's NDAA. Um, Adam Smith, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, said in the past that we can get by without ICBMs altogether. Just a few days ago, he said that maybe we can get by with fewer ICBMs and not really have a new program to replace them. So let me get this straight. We have a return to great power competition. Adversaries are modernizing and expanding their nuclear capabilities and forces. They're building new systems and they're exploring new technologies, potentially creating difficult problems to us. But chairman of the HASC favors keeping ICBMs in the ground that have been there since 1970s. Now granted with life extensions and some um, sustainment efforts and all that, but still, 1970s. So, um, we are cutting back from the, from the New START modernization program developed for a more Pacific environment. That's just nuts. Now, trends in other states' nuclear forces got worse since the end of the Cold War. And you know, that's not just Russia and China. Uh, we have not done any significant nuclear weapons modernization since the end of the Cold War. And by the way, that's another way of saying that there isn't really a correlation between you doing nuclear weapons modernization and other countries being willing to reduce their nuclear forces. Now, if anything, the correlation seems, seems to be running more in, in an opposite direction. So the more we try to get away from the nuclear genie, the more he becomes attractive for others. Now, it doesn't really have to be that way. Uh, Democratic President Jimmy Carter started our latest nuclear weapons modernization efforts. And you know, it's been a while because that effort started before I was born. Now, that effort also contributed to the end of the Cold War and to keeping the peace since the end of the Cold War. And I think we owe our, our, you know, our posterity, uh, our kids, no less than that. And with that, I'm looking forward to your questions. Great. Thank you so much, Michaela. And then, uh, JV, uh, take us home here, would you? Well, uh, thank you, Tom. And thank you. I, I enjoyed the remarks. <coughs> if it makes you feel any better, it's not a happy panel, but it's a happy <laughs> lunch that follows. Okay. <laughs> Um, we're, uh, I'm going to go down a couple of thoughts uh, with regard to air power in big picture uh, terms. I, I was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. Much of my terminology is going to go down into that uh, Cro-Magnum area. But literally, if you look at the fighter and you see that as a pyramid uh, of, of resources, that's the way we look at brigade combat teams as well and Navy ships as well. I'll go into some details, and I look forward to your questions beyond capacity. Big deal for us. Um, we look at capacity at the Heritage Foundation um, uh, in major regional conflicts and what it takes uh, with regard to air power to get there. Average over the course of the last 50 years takes about uh, 500 fighters to execute a major regional conflict plus 
um, uh, uh, attrition reserves and the likes, and we round that up to around 600, about a 20% uh, upage. And so for a major regional conflict, 600 for two, that's 1,200 fighters. Um, last year, not in this year's ind index, uh, the United States Air Force had about a 911, 910 combat-coded fighters. So about uh, uh, two-thirds, three-quarters of what we needed. And this year, we inched up a bit. We got some uh, F-35s in. We stopped uh, re the retirement program of uh, fighter platforms. And so we are, we're right around 950, 955 right now. And that number is liable to go up over time but it's not going up in the right direction. Um, the Air Force budget has been increased by 30% since President Trump came into office. Uh, if you look at where that money has gone, procurement has gone actually up 1%. And net over the course of those four years of presidential budgets, including this one that has yet to be enacted, um, it's actually gone down over the course of that period. If you add up all of the years of, uh, of procurement, it's actually gone down. And so we're not fueling that procurement side to get our capacity up to where it needs. And that also hampers modernization uh, and, and our uh, capability side. Um, if you look at where we are right now, um, we are flying fighters that are uh, 30 years old. Um, if you look at the history of the United States, going back all the way to the Cold War, we're up and above 50% um, older in average age of fighter platforms. During the first Gulf Storm War, um, we had a lot of fighter squadrons. We had a lot of reserve uh, squadrons. But the average age of a fighter back then was between 16 and 17 years old. And now you're talking about dated equipment that's harder to maintain. Add in the maintainability. Last year, we had about a 65 to 70 percent uh, in that ballpark of mission-capable rates for our fighters. If you do the multiple of 950 times uh, 65, you're going to get a fighter capability on a daily basis that's sub-500. And so this is where these things start to come together to make us a realistic picture of where we are. And I will say that the two major regional conflicts that we plan for are uh, uh, Korea or, uh, and or a, um, Iran or another Iraq type of scenario. That's not a China scenario. And when you start factoring in the legs, the, uh, the amount of equipment that you need to move into the region and the tanker bridge, we call it the ability for you to meet one tanker and then the next tanker and then the next tanker to get all the way where you need to go, our numbers are way down in that area. Um, I think the chart that uh, Dakota put up is we're at 65% of the capacity we had during Desert Storm. And ladies and gentlemen, we used al almost all of our capacity in order to get that stuff into the Gulf and make sure the fighters had gas and the bombers had gas to go and get to their targets. That tanker bridge is really important but it is going to be dwarfed the capacity that we need to get to the to the uh, the China scenario. The same thing with airlift. Airlift uh, right now, we're, we're strategic airlift. We're at seventy one percent of the capacity. We could still do a desert storm going east, hopscopping across uh, Greenland into Europe and going into the Gulf. But those those little ponds, uh, those little lily pads, are not there going west toward the Pacific big-time capability gap there. The last area is the bomber fleet. Um, we are right now at 44% of the capacity we had 
during um, Desert Storm. 44%, that's across all uh, active guard and reserve. And, and this is one where if you're talking about the legs, the ability for a bomber or a fighter to take off from one location, go and hit the target and have gas or the capability to get all the way back to its uh, previous location, the only folks that really have the ability to do that right now are our bombers. And, and we do not have the bomber strength we need to get in and go and execute a China scenario. Again, a China scenario, if you want to play the game that says we just go and we punch them in the nose and they go back in their corner where they belong, that's wishful thinking. And uh, if I could commend uh, uh, one of the papers that, that Dakota talked about, Tom Earhart's up here. And his paper on, on uh, what the, the failures of a winning strategy will get you and the dividends that go into it, um, those are huge things to consider. Last thing I'll talk about, and then we'll move on to questions, is readiness. You know, it's actually a combination of the equipment that you've got to fly, whether it's the most modern and, and whether your people are trained to do it. <coughs> Our, our numbers are ticking up with regard to how much time we give our pilots to go out and train. Uh, you know, I wasn't a very good fighter pilot. I must not have been because I needed three or four sorties a week in order to get better or to sustain my capabilities. And right now, we're not feeding guys like me and gals like me that are on the flight line right now. We're not feeding them the bananas that they used to feed people like me. They're getting two to two and a half sorties a week. And, and no matter what you think about how much more brilliant we are today than what we were 20 or 30 years ago, that's not true. We need to give them the time in the air and the demand to train to high threat uh, scenarios that we haven't touched. It takes seven years from the time somebody graduates from flight school to become the best fighter pilot they can be in the Air Force, to manifest those capabilities. When I was a kid, I got all seven years in a high threat scenario. And so I could give that, that capability and that training to the next generation. And as I timed out, that next group was getting trained up. Well, we've gone through two complete generations of fighter pilots that have never trained for that th high threat scenario. And so this would be the equivalent of having a professional football team that's only ever looked at high school teams to play and scrimmage against. And now you're asking them to go into the big game. And, and, and we're not even training up to the level where we're playing college ball just yet. Air Force is going to take a couple of years to get this right, but this shifting of funds and putting it to where people need, need to be, we, we need to kind of get out of the efficiency mode and start driving toward true capability. Um, the last thing I'll say about this overall picture and wishful thinking, we have gone through the first offset, which was nukes, and the second offset, which was precision guidance. And now we're looking at a third offset that's also technically focused, that gives us a manpower leverage. We don't have the manpower, we don't have the machinery, but by golly, we've got this technology that beats everybody out. The most classified system in World War II was the Norden bomb site. The Germans had that in 1939. The Germans had that, and, and every bomber that they produced from 1940 on was flying with a copy of the Norton bomb site. In 1950, our F-86s, the Sabres, went up against MiG-15s. Our capability should have been monstrously better than theirs, but the Brits had sold Russia 
Rolls-Royce engines for their um, MiG-15s. And the Chinese and the Russians copied those motors, and that changed the paradigm to where when we went into Korea, that MiG-15 was a better fighter than the, the F-86. And what we had to compensate for that was training, and we trained hard. And ladies and gentlemen, the only thing that we're going to have in the third offset, if they come in and they start stealing like they've stolen stealth technology from us and, and pilfered other, in other areas, the only thing that we're going to have is training and the best equipment that we can give our guys and gals. And we're not getting them the training they need at the edge, at, the, at that forward leading edge that they need. And we're not refurbishing them with the equipment they're going to need to go in and dominate the fight. And with that, happy note. I'll, uh, I'll end my, uh, my uh, soliloquy. Oh, that was great. I mean, I hear this stuff because I get to work here, but even still, I was, I was riveted. So that was great stuff, panelists. Thank you so much. So this is time, your time for questions and answers. Uh, please uh, wait till I call on you and then get a microphone because we are streaming this live, recording it, all that kind of stuff, YouTube. And uh, so, Pat, you had your hand up first, so let's, let's go with you, please. Thank you, Tom. Um, uh, Clown Kitchen, uh, you sketched a, a riveting picture in very, very broad brushstrokes. Could you just illustratively walk us through one or two of these things where wh what, is, what are they doing to integrate into their private industry and so forth, and how does that warp the, the global trading system? Just walk us through one or two, for instances. That's a great question. Thank you. I'll try and do this as quickly as possible. Um, I think the current conversation around fifth-generation wireless networks, 5G, is a great example of that. So <clears throat> um, over the last several decades, um, the Chinese company Huawei has become a, a, a global leader in networking technologies, and, and the stuff they build works. Um, and they currently uh, are... Uh, position to gain as much as 50% of the global market uh, on fifth generation wireless networks. And the reason that is, is um, they as a company have been heavily supported in terms of uh, the theft of intellectual property that has allowed them to innovate, uh, as well as financially subsidized and, and other facilitation by the, the government in Beijing. That then allowed them to, through that and the predatory lending practices that have been uh, talked about previously, They've been allowed to position that company very aggressively globally, and our own marketplace does what it does. We looked for efficiency and cost savings, and our ability to um, unilaterally build these types of networks diminished while theirs elevated. Um, and that was efficient. The problem was it was also short-term thinking. And as we talk about uh, fifth-generation or 5G networks, uh, this is more than just faster phones. We're talking about the central nervous system of the next economy. And when you consider that somewhere approximating 80% of defense communications transits um, privately held communication lines, um, this becomes a matter of national security, not just economics. Um, and then when you think about our capacity to operate overseas, the Department of Defense has looked at these types of developments and similars and realized we have to now move into a networking strategy where we operate on zero trust networks, where it is almost a foregone conclusion that if we're operating in most of the world, we're going to be operating on Chinese developed and managed networks. That is an unsatisfactory risk. Therefore, we have to come up with new methodologies and strategies for operating in that environment. That is one example of, frankly, many where we are having to address that type of fusion challenge. 
Yes, please, in the front here. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your insight. <clears throat> uh, I'm a reporter for Voice of American Korean Service. Uh, we, we talked about U.S. military strength, but I want to ask on regards regards to the alliance structure. And, well, right now the burden sharing is one of the big issues with the alliance, especially South Korea. And I was wondering, like, when you talk about alliance, do, like usually traditionally the South Korea, Iraq, U.S. alliance was defined uh, to deter North Korean threats. But do you think that uh, there's a need for... Uh, a transformation of definition that South Korea should much more uh, participate in filling uh, filling in the gap of the United States military strength. And secondly, regarding that, do you think this should be reflected in the uh, ongoing uh, burden sharing negotiation that's going on with the U.S.? Thank you. Thank you. A good question. Good question. Anyone want to take a stab at this? L let me say a word or two. I, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but. Definitely, we would want South Korea to look much more broadly than just the North Korean threat. The entire, entire region, and in particular China, we would want that to be a, a shared element of concern between both of our two countries. And I'll, I'll be honest, I have watched a few developments in South Korea recently. You know, they are sh the size of their army is shrinking. Um, I guess it's partly budget, but it's also partly difficulties in uh, attracting youth to join the military. And so that, that greatly concerns me. Um, but I think, you know, your basic point is it is much more than North Korea now in that region. And so we need all the, you know, the only way, you know, Dakota Wood talked about how, you know, we have the totality of the Chinese military and we only have a fraction of the U.S. military. We are going to need every ally, partner, friend in that region if we are going to be able to counter that threat. I don't know if anybody wants to add to that or... Thank you, sir. Yes, sir, in the back. And then I'll go to you uh, next. Please. Thank you. This is Namo Abdullah. I'm a journalist with the Kurdish news service, Rudao. Uh, I have a question about uh, Katsa sanctions on Turkey. Why haven't they been triggered by the Trump administration and uh, despite the procurement of the S-400 missile defense system by the Turks? Uh, is there something that Congress can do uh, in this regard? Thank you. That's a great question. Uh, do you want to try that? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking down. I, I'll just say I don't know either. I mean, I remember we were talking about this. It's been three months or so now that we talked about uh, these sanctions being triggered. And I remember there were reports coming out of the White House saying that they were thinking about it. There were such elaborate mechanisms as well. If they, if they keep the S-400 missile system in a little like fenced-in area and nobody touches it, maybe that doesn't uh, trigger CATSA. And that seemed to me that kind of a uh, overthinking this, that I think we're, we're way past that now. And so by my understanding of CATSA, which I'm not an expert on, I think CATSA should have been triggered. Uh, obviously, there are big implications when we do that. Uh, and I would think uh, because Congress passed CATSA that Congress could have a role in being, making sure the rules of that law are followed. So, and that's one of the elements that got thrown in the NDA conference as well. Like it, it's one of those recent developments, both everything that went on in Syria and everything that is going on in Turkey. That after they f or were finished on writing their bills, happened so there you might be able to see something being incorporated during conference, if you ever get a conference report. 
Great. Okay. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, let's go to the front here, please. So uh, this is addressed to each of you, actually, in terms of your area of expertise, this question. Um, in light of the uh, rise of nationalism among the peoples, uh, our, both among our, our traditional enemies and allies, there's just rise of nationalism actually throughout the world. Um, how, uh, uh, how do you all see that in terms of impacting what uh, within your own area of expertise in, in terms of not, not only national security, but just, just the future, future of, uh, um, the future of America? I'll, I'll uh, pick it up. Can I get you where you're from, sir? Uh, um, um, Augustus, Alzona, Filipino by birth, American by choice, family and extended family has been in this town since 1955. We've seen U.S. presidents and Philippine presidents come and go, but this is this is more a general question. I I, I don't mean to no, no completely get it. So, Augustus, thank you. Right. Um, so this is uh, I'm going to go off a tangent for a second. I I was riding with my wife in a car uh, when we were first dating. And, uh, and it was uh, in California, we're going up the coast, and the car got a little warm. And so my wife turned the air conditioner full up, and she went all the way up, and it became an icebox. And about five minutes into the icebox thing, she turned it all the way off. And then when she got warm again, she turned it all the way on. And I said, honey, did you know that there's a sick setting on that? And, and this idea of nationalism being a zero or a one, a full off or full on, is the argument that I kind of don't understand. Um, the, the need to have youth that's willing to serve and be proud of the United States is nationalism. But isn't that bad? Don't we want to kill that? Certainly, if you have a Hitler youth that's growing, that's a form of nationalism. And so if you look at this extreme and you go, um, uh, America good, kill all bad, that, that's not what nationalism has ever meant in the United States. And so I kind of – I'm pushed uh, – taken a little back by, by the implication that in the United States, we ought not to be proud of who we are and what we've done. This is the greatest nation that has ever been, and there are so many wrongs that we do. But compared to every other nation that has ever existed, we're so much righter than all of the other ones. And in, in the zero or one game, I'm a one on that. But as far as the, the extremist view on nationalism – I'm, I'm never going to ask for my family or anybody around me to go below 50%. I'm going to ask them to keep it up to where you take pride. You're, you're, the streets are clean because you like living here. You want the education system to be better, so you put more effort into it as opposed to say, education, bad, kill all books. I mean, where, where do we go in this rant? I will say it's above 50%, and I'm going to set the dial at 60 or 70 Klein, do you want to take a swing at this? Because you you think and talk about these things occasionally. Yeah, so I think I don't know that I have a particular technology uh, perspective on this. I'll, I'll simply I want to piggyback on what JV was saying, and I think it's important to understand that when we talk about American nationalism, you have to start with who we are as a nation, right? When we talk about American exceptionalism, we we we're, we're making an, an actual factual assertion that the United States and the way that we have come about to be a nation 
is categorically different than the way nations have occurred previously, right? We have not evolved over the course of time as, um, you know, an individual people in blood and soil. We started with a political idea about the nature and the value of people and how they are best governed based on their natures. And we have then exercised that experiment. So when we talk about American nationalism, we're talking about a, a pride and a faith in that. And that, I think, is something to be proud of. But I think JV's essential point is, in fact, essential, that it's not a zero-one game. It's a uh, thoughtful awareness. But the reality is, is that no nation that cannot make a distinction between its own people and the peoples of other nations will survive. And so to the degree that this nation does that, that is completely rational and it is good. And I think that goes, again, to part of the pathologies of victory that Dr. Earhart wrote about. Uh, we just assume that Western values won, and so we don't need to talk about them anymore. <coughs> everyone should have democracy. Everyone should have human rights. Isn't that pretty? We don't need to talk about that anymore. Let's talk about trade. And that's not the case. Uh, there are still big portions of the globe that don't have basic human rights, that where women can't drive, or what have you, or you can't go on the street and, and write a sign about whatever you want. And that's why in my own personal niche, not on what I work in, uh, I really like the NBA discussion with China because that highlighted the contrast in the values that both systems have. And you saw a lot of people that did not talk about free speech talking about the importance of free speech because there is an external threat to it. You see those companies trying to limit what Daryl Moore is trying to do, even though all he did was retweet something and then he erased. But that triggered a whole chain reaction that now, uh, like, I bought Hong Kong shirts to go to NBA games here, like, just because, just to make a point. And I think that, that con the societal contrast is something that we need to re-engage on, explain what are Western and what are American values and why, like, People like me chose to come to the U.S. and people like Michaela chose to come to the U.S. and not somewhere else. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the truth is that there are many other countries where I, I can choose to go there, but they will never accept me. <laughs> America accepts you. Um, and, you know, maybe it is a part of nationalism. Maybe it is a part of national culture, but that doesn't make it bad. And Europe has dealt with nationalism in one way or another uh, for for a very long time, sometimes to almost its peril. Uh, but it's it's human nature. People want to belong. Uh, they have different levels of differentiation. Uh, they define themselves in again di different ways, and that's something we think about. Uh, maybe we could have a discussion about how, how nuclear weapons play in national cultures and how the United States perceives its nuclear weapons very differently than Russia, China, or North Korea. And those are legitimate, well, maybe not legitimate, but valid differences that we want to take into account when we plan our nuclear forces posture, when we think about our nuclear weapons strategy. People don't think like us. Well, I never thought we would have had that discussion. <laughs> uh, but now that we've had it, I, I no, no, I, I loved it, honestly. And no, 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 no. 
No, I wouldn't have seen us going there, but I'm glad we went there. Okay, the uh, lady right there, please. Thank you. Um, I'm Bridget Calhoun. I'm a captain in the U.S. Army. I just finished company command over in the 173rd in Italy. And we spent a lot of time in NATO exercises training against Russian forces. And um, my question kind of deals with the methodology for the index. How closely, if at all, did you compare or look at how our adversaries like China and Russia conduct their multinational joint exercises with us? Um, and then I guess looking ahead to the 2021 index, are you going to be examining the Defender 2020 exercises um, and just kind of how those compare to what our adversaries are doing? Um, we've talked a lot about the numbers of our key capabilities and equipment, but I think the employment and the doctrine and tactics are, are also kind of telling. I'll, maybe I'll let you comment in a moment. I'll, I'll just comment because I wrote the Army chapter. And, you know, I'm very complimentary of the Army's efforts to build readiness, and that includes their joint combined exercise program. Even though it's kind of been reduced a bit in, uh, on the Korean Peninsula, er, elsewhere it is on the uptick, and these are more real realistic exercises uh, with our allies in more combat realistic scenarios than they were. I mean, we were using Hohenfelds, our main training area in Germany, for coin operations for the past 10 years, and we've now gone back to force on force. And so I'm encouraged by that. Those exercises don't change, however, what Dakota was talking about early, and that is the capacity. Our army is still too small, and in the equipment that he has, even though, you know, and I'm, again, I like what the army is doing. They talk about their cross-functional teams and the Army Futures Command and, and six modernization priorities. So far, those are just slides, however, and they're money in slides. And so uh, you got to start somewhere, and they are starting, but they haven't... Um, yet resulted in an appreciable, measurable difference in the uh, capability of the Army. And so I'm encouraged by that. For those that don't know, there's this exercise that uh, Captain Calhoun mentioned called Defender 2000, I think it's called? 2020. 2020. Yeah, sorry. Uh, which is really cool. So I, the Army is advertising that there's going to be more than 20,000 people involved in it. It's going to be in Europe. It's going to be a simulation of the type of exercise that we used to do when I was in the Army in Germany in the 1980s where we actually uh, simulated um, returning forces to, the, uh, to Europe to fight a battle. And so I'm excited by that. I think that will contribute to Army readiness. It will contribute to skills in deployment and, and moving into an area of operations that they have not exercised. So I'm excited by that. It will get their readiness even higher, but until they increase their size, or their modernization levels, they're probably their rating in the index of U.S. military strength will not increase. So I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. So it's a great question. Um, I was a forward air controller uh, back in the day when um, you had officers in the field doing that radio uh, call, calling in close air support. And Hohenfels was an incredible place uh, to go and go through the experience of a Cold War exercise because you would be awake for 48 hours and, and a lot of people didn't understand the, the, the need to do that, but when you get to the 48-hour point, all they're asking you to is to move into position, be ready to go, and then when targets come up, see how well you do, and you go through that, that, that thought process. And it's exhausting. Well, that, that's not people dying next to you, explosions happening in real war, but you're leaning into the environment where you're going to have to be awake and you're going to have to fight. Um, if you test the United States Air Force the same way, you have to start in the United States and say, okay, I want you to pack up all your stuff. You got 48 hours. 
to actually get airborne and get to Al-Udid or get to um, a, a location in the Philippines to where you can start fighting the next day. Uh, during the last 15 or 20 years, we've gone through this thought process where you're no longer reactionary. You can plan everything out. So you have eight months or 10 months to prepare, okay, I'm going to need to put that stuff in that, uh, that uh, container there. Uh, these are the things that I'm going to need to chart off. And then when you take off, you get to a place and you have time with which to prepare to go into a low threat environment. We haven't, uh, we haven't prepared to go into a survive to operate environment like we did throughout the Cold War. And, and that means much more intense focus than what you get at Red Flag. Red Flag, you get a, a sortie where you get to launch. You've planned for 48 hours. You go into the area, high threat environment. You're doing threat reactions. But then you get to go home and you get to, to look at the film and you go, how would I do? The maintainers get to go, ah, that was a good go. Do you guys want to go downtown and have uh, turn, turn the wrenches at the, at the, at the craps table? As opposed to having to turn an airplane, having to turn an airplane, having to turn an airplane, having the equipment and the stores and the manpower required to continually man that unit at a 1.4, 1.5 level of manning, whereas we have today 1.1 to 1.2 going forward to those exercises. When you test it to those ends, under those situations, you're going back to Hohenfels and going, can you stay awake? Can you move your vehicle? Can you go and do fundamental combat movements? Can you do that? And we haven't done that in a long time. And so while we're moving in the right direction, and, and uh, Defender 2020 is going to be a good one next year, we're, we're actually going to try to do an entire, we call them reforgers back in the 1980s, where you move all the stuff that you need over there. You know, go to railheads. You're going to kill one or two people on a railhead. No, we can't do that because of the costs associated are too high for training. Guys and gals, if you don't do it in training, you're going to suffer so much worse and you're going to get there so much slower in wartime. And so this is where we need to start looking. Efficiencies and safety are going to be compromised, and they have to be in order for us to move forward. Sorry, long answer. So let's go over there, gentlemen, right there, please. Yeah, um, Pat Spann. The, um, I, I don't know. This is, I guess, maybe both Navy and Air Force question. I... Um, was a little surprised about five or six years ago, I was on a class um, trip to um, Colorado Springs and we were touring the academy and the, uh, the escort officer was telling us how they were having a hard time getting the Air Force Academy guys to want to be rated, which was dumbfounding to me. I was a West Point graduate and that would be mind-boggling would be like West Point not wanting to go combat arms, which may be true too now. But I guess it's a personnel thing. How do we, how is this shaping out? Because I assume the Navy is the same thing with the quality of um, who mans, mans the ships and uh, wants to go out to sea uh, six months out of every year. And But the, I was just dumbfounded that, that that Air Force Academy graduates did not want to become rated. And, and um, I guess I don't know how that how that gets if that's a true problem, I think it is. How do you get? How does it get solved? Uh, your name, sir? Pat Span. Pat. Uh, Pat. It's a great question. Uh, 
Again, I have no short stories, but uh, I was at the uh, I was at Air Command and Staff College, uh, so that's where uh, majors go uh, to go for a year and get trained. and And uh, and and you're in with all of your peers. To so a fighter pilot, uh, fish out of water, going into an academic environment, and then uh, you have logisticians, you have um, folks who work computers. The ends of the Air Force are there. And it's a ex- great environment. Uh, they got up on stage, and this is 1995. Got up on stage and they gave a briefing on unmanned aerial vehicles. It was about the Predator. And the guy on stage said, we envision that the last manned fighter will be produced in 2025. When he said that, you might have thought what the reaction would be, but it was an explosive standing ovation from the Air Command and Staff College. And so this idea of coming back into nationalism, having pride in what you do and fostering that, uh, it's the fly and fight. That's the theme of the Air Force. How do you bring that about? Well, you do it at the schools. You do it when you send fighter pilots and bomber pilots and tanker pilots into schools and tell them about the glory days of being in the air and how much fun it is and how incredibly exciting. And you want to be on the leading edge. You don't want to be part of the shaft. You want to be on the tip of the spear. Well, during all of the shortages, all of the the gutting of the services, the pilot shortage writ large, we have taken our pilots out of the schools. And we've taken them out of the staffs. So our actual fighter pilot manning on average went up last year in operational units, even though our, our, our shortfall of pilots is continuing to go down. It may have, it may have stopped its fall, but it's, it's not rising. And the way we've manned that fighter units and bomber units and tanker units is by pulling out all the plugs in the other areas where they serve. So in the Pentagon, try to find somebody who's not a chief, a chief of staff executive officer or, or aide that's a pilot. They're almost all um, in, in another profession. It doesn't denigrate those other professions, but what it does is it stops this formulation that says you want to be on the leading edge. Instead, what you get is you want to be with me in, as, in a comptroller unit. That's where the action is. It's where the money is. And no kidding, as much as you want to think that works, it works 100% that way. You want to build a football team? You, you send football players into schools and get them excited about playing ball. You don't send math teachers who never wanted to play <laughs> in and saying, have you thought about playing football? Right? Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, a Japan native U.S. citizen, Reagan Foundation. Uh, can somebody talk about the Space Force, uh, the uh, newly created JV, maybe? Yes, thank you. Mitsuo, a great question. What do you want to know about the Space Force? And I'll, I'll generate a lie or two for you. <laughs> is there a specific area? So I, I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts. One is the Space Force is, is going to happen. Now, whether you look at the House or you look at the Senate's version of the NDAA, they, they both have it in there. So it's going to manifest. And you're not going to get assets that are pulled out of any other service. You're not going to get any, uh, any professional space professionals that come out of the other ones. It's all going to be lopped out of the Air Force, which was kind of what we thought it was going to be a couple of years ago, which is not ideal. Um, 
it is going to make things better for space. We're going to actually start having a focus that uh, the, the cuffs are off. Before, uh, 10 years ago, you couldn't say China was an adversary. You also couldn't say we want to weaponize space. It was one of those things where you couldn't do that because space, it's the last peaceful environment, only it was wishful thinking. It, the Russians and the Chinese have got incredible anti-satellite capabilities and the ability to co-orbit and do things to our satellites. We don't even know what they're doing. And so this is the, the guffaw. We've got that and we're moving in the right direction. And I, I think it's, it's going to be healthy for the Space Force. And I think it's really going to be healthy for the United States Air Force, too, to where we can start uh, focusing our efforts more on flying and fighting than trying to balance that, that discourse between resources going to flying, aviation, and that supporting mechanism, and resources that are going into the upper tier. Both are really important. Don't, please don't get me wrong. But to try to balance my mind and to say, which child am I going to feed more today? Um, the Air Force won't have to worry about that anymore. How long does it take to catch up with them? Um, I, I, I would say that, uh, that, one, it's a very hard question to answer. Um, we have not invested in ground-based systems that will take out their satellite systems the way they have ours. In low Earth orbits and, you know, the middle tier out there, um, we could probably generate something in, in pretty short order to do that. And I don't honestly know what we have behind, you know, the green door. I, I really don't know if we've, we've been, you know, sitting on these capabilities and now we pull them out and, and it's a monstrous special operator that we, none of us knew existed. But from what I can tell, we're a little bit behind there. And it's going to take us a while and it's going to take us some treasure to catch up. And the emphasis now is really important. It's heading in that direction. Fair? So let's go to this lady here, please. Thank you. Um, it seems you have another Georgian in the room. Uh, KHHL, I come from Sector 3, which is Georgian Think Tank. Uh, it's extremely interesting to be here, and it's uh, it's a bit worrying as well, to be honest, because the you know, world sees the U.S., at least it's Georgian, coming from Georgia, as a strategic partner and a really the good hope up here, right? And um, hearing there's a lot of challenges, it is kind of very worrying. And plus, in the region where we see a lot of developments, especially when you would consider in 21st century, really things like that can happen, like in a day, having this huge uh, military mission starting and moving, you know, in, in, in neighboring um, the regions. Um, I have a I have this very maybe I don't I hope it's not a big question to open a new whole new discussion, but um, do you have a recommendation like exactly what should be done, how it should be start, and how much it would really cost to us to really um, the cut the shortages that you have been talking about this this morning, because it's um, you know the uh, the trainings the um, uh, uh, everything that has been underlined it is kind of really sounds too worrying even though we were promised a good lunch it's still a really worrying um, so it's really I think good to maybe talk about possible recommendations or what are the steps now from your perspective to really move forward quick thank you. Um. Great question. I'll say one thing is that we have written specific papers about the Army and the Marine Corps, which, so the index, Dakota's over there, would tell you that the index doesn't really make prescriptions, it makes diagnoses. Another set of papers that we're in the process of writing right now do make 
prescriptions. And so I've written the Army paper. Dakota wrote a paper on the Marine Corps. Both of those, I think my Army paper has like 60 recommendations in it. Dakota's paper is about the same. JV is writing his Air Force paper and uh, we'll have a Navy paper. And so each of these papers have a specific diagnosis. Um, I think if I was to ask Fred, the, step one is consistent funding of the Department of Defense, three to 5% real growth. And people sometimes don't put the real growth word in there. And some people don't even understand what is real growth. Real growth is three to 5% on top of inflation. So if you just, gave them a 2% increase from 2020 to 2021, you would have just kept up with inflation. And so what you have to have, and when you say three to 5% real growth is you're really talking five to se five to 7% growth year over year. No, there are no budget forecasts that show the Department of Defense <coughs> growing five to 7% year over year in anybody's book, except maybe heritages. And so that's a problem. And so without that, you can do, you can try and save money. I mean, Fred was kind, but the Department of Defense's efforts to use reform and cut to save money typically have never generated the kind of savings that are needed to do the kinds of things we're talking about. They have, they're not trivial, but they're not enough. I don't know if anybody wants to add anything to... No, I wanted to add one thing as well. Uh, the main thing that needs to happen is that the services need to start asking what they actually need instead of being already bound by political budget. I understand that they have their own constraints, but if you don't ask for what you really need, you're not going to get even close because it's really hard for an outside player to, to make an argument that the DOD needs a higher budget than what they are asking for because the, the retort is immediately going to be, oh, no, this is what the specialists, the people that have more knowledge on the situation right now are saying that is necessary. Therefore, that's the ceiling. And, so, and that's how you end up. You end up with the president's budget request being the ceiling that Congress can, can reach. And if you're, making the, if you're coming already with the argument that this is all we need, you're not going to get more, and you need to be able to make that argument. That's why I really like the the study. I think it was – I don't know if it was CRS or CBO on how much it would actually cost to have a 355-ship Navy, and let alone if you go to the 400-ship Navy that Tom Callender wrote about. So there is a, a Navy paper on that. Yeah. Um, a simplistic answer, but I think a, a – a a meaningful answer to your question in terms of what specifically should we do? Read and take seriously the assessment of this index. Like the reason, you know, we're kind of joking about this kind of dour, like, it's kind of hard. It's because you're hearing us, right? This building in ways that I don't think anybody else really has a, a comparable capability, if I can just be honest with you, is chock full of experts whose only interest is the peace and prosperity of this nation, who are looking at issues that we've asked them to look at with the expertise that they have cultivated over a lifetime of service, and they're giving a hard-nosed, honest assessment of the challenges. I think if you do that, then you start to actually provoke the type of 
motivation and commitment that will be necessary to do these other things. There's a thousand ways that we can do dollar trades and figure things out. Well, that can happen. But it only happens if you actually understand and are properly motivated by the challenge itself. And this index does that. And so if you read it and heed it, that's the first best step. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I highlighted the steps to be taken in my remarks. Modernize, get away with just some of the policy, you know, get away from this idea that when you don't do anything, others will magically cooperate with you. They're not going to do that. They're going to do what they see in their own interest. And somehow we lost the connection between us being able to critically evaluate what their interests are and apply those lessons <coughs> to how we posture ourselves for the next fight. But historically, that has always been the case with the United States, right? We always, we always wait. We always convince ourselves that the world is going to be peaceful after this big war that we just had or after that big war. And, you know, but now really, like now really, it's going to be different this time. And what concerns me today is in the past, we mobilized, we came in, kicked butts, and saved the world, right? Just twice, at least twice in the, well, maybe three times just in the 20th century. What I worry about is whether we, we will have time to mobilize and respond before it's too late, right? Some problems are just too hard for democracies to think about. Resurgent Russia is one of those problems. Uh, aggressive China is another one of those problems. Um, so I, I do worry about whether we have we will have that time to respond to to a surprise. Great. All right. So we have time for one more question. And uh, yes, please, Mayor in the back. Thank you. Chris McNulty from Applied Futures. I think this has been absolutely fascinating and I really enjoyed it. But one of the things I noticed is that everyone is really talking about extensions of current capabilities and facilities and technologies. Is anyone in the Heritage Foundation really looking at completely new areas? I mean, things like neuroscience, um, just, just to thinking of one. Um, where are the next big developments coming from that could actually solve all these problems? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll let Klan talk in a moment here because he manages our future technologies. Each of us look at and balance what we see in our area. So J.V. Venable, for example, is looking at what the Army, or not the Army, the Air Force proposes for its next generation air dominance platform. And he's also using his personal judgment on the on where technology can help the Air Force in terms of autonomy and and robotic type systems. And so we each look at those areas. But we our view of these things is also tempered by a reality which tends to kind of diminish uh, expectations more quickly than you'd like in this area. And in the end, in many cases, um, what has become known, you know, what has been true for millennia is that sometimes a city or a town or something needs a soldier or a Marine on a street corner uh, with a weapon, uh, and there is no good substitute for that. But I will 
Klein, do you want to? Yeah, you had me until you, you said, that will solve all of this. <laughs> <laughs> nope, <laughs> that doesn't exist. Okay, but I, I think it's important. So, number one, the answer to your question is yes, there are people at Heritage who are thinking about this. Some of them are, well, all of us on the stage are among those. Um, but it's my job to kind of herd those saber-toothed tigers here in this building to, toward that end. Um, but it's also important to understand that while there are some very promising technologies, they each bring their own challenges with them. So, so there's, there's no kind of getting out of this loop. Let me just briefly explain one that I, I personally think is the most promising, artificial intelligence. Uh, AI, uh, there's a lot of marketing around AI. At the same time, it is one of those technologies that I think holds the promise to um, potentially meet all the, all the marketing or at least get close. Um, it is a general purpose technology, meaning it will touch virtually every aspect of war fighting, policy making, and everything else. But a couple of things that that provokes, just, just right there. One, as we implement artificial intelligence into modern defense and national security apparatus, let alone everything else, we're going to know more than we've ever known before. I mean, it is going to be astounding. With the, with the digitization of data, our ability to ingest and exploit information is going to explode. That's a great thing. It's also a challenging thing. Two, we're not always going to know how we know things. So it is a common reality with artificial intelligence that AI algorithms accomplish tasks or even speak to one another in ways that the programmers themselves cannot explain or describe. So what happens when, for example, we have an AI political military algorithm that says, hey, country X is about to move against country C at this time and date, and we think there's a 78% likelihood of a surprise attack. But our human analysts can't for the life of them explain why it's making that assessment. But that AI algorithm's never been wrong before. Okay, that's a challenge. Like, what do we do, right? But then on top of that, we're going to ultimately <clears throat> outsource thousands of small decisions to AI incrementally, um, but end up in a place where we're so heavily dependent on that, and there's so many steps underneath the hood that we don't really understand and don't know how we got there. We don't really, really know what to do. So, for example, when you get into your car and you throw up in Google Maps and you say home, how skeptical are you of that route? Or do you just start driving? Right? Okay, that's where we're going to be. And that's an unavoidable reality because these things are powerful and they're going to be effective. And then finally, with AI, it'll be authoritative until it isn't. <laughs> My point being, the first time Google sends you through Delaware when you're trying to get to Maryland, all of a sudden you don't think Google's so, so good and reliable anymore. Well, the same thing. This is going to build doctrines. These are going to be approaches that our challengers try to introduce data and AI um, uh, unreliability. And we're not sufficiently fortified against that. I mean, right now we're building the data sets that are going to influence and, and that these things are going to be driven on in the future. So that's just one small example of, I think, a very real promising emerging technology that is going to be decisive and, 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 and massively influential, but that brings with it its own very difficult uh, peculiarities and challenges. So we are thinking about that. We just haven't fixed it. I'll add, I'll add one other one, and it's an Army example. We talk about the value of having autonomous or robotic vehicles. And so one tank or one personnel carrier carrying and controlling three or four little swarming guys around them. Mm -hmm. And that's a very attractive idea uh, because you could – people say, well, now you can reduce your manpower needs. Okay. But all these little swarming guys, little robot vehicles swarming around, 
who fills them with gas and who fixes them and who does their end of day maintenance and who keeps them pointed and who gets them out of a ditch when they get stuck. Well, when you start doing that manpower bill, you're back to where you were and maybe worse. And so, because now you need a higher end group of people that actually understand how robots work. And so we've been, we've been down this path before in the Army. We used to, we've cut our, the number of cooks we needed because we figured, well, we have this new automated microwave cooking system and it didn't work. And we had to go back and find the cooks because uh, <coughs> we were hungry. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a wonderful event. And please thank our panel. I am told the reception is ready with the famous filet mignon sliders. And so when you exit the auditorium, you just make that first left down the hall and you will come across the Heritage Team Lounge. And so I hope to see you there. Thank you.